This episode is brought to you by Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. Fizzy Vantage is the leading brand in climbing nutrition with more than 40 professional climbers now using Fizzy Vantage products daily to support their training and climbing performance. Visit fizzyvantage.com to learn more about their many innovative research-based nutrition products and supplements, including their revolutionary supercharged collagen. That's my personal favorite. I'm rocking the peach mango flavor right now. The performance-boosting Endure-X and their delicious protein supplements, weapons-grade whey, and they have a plant-based protein called PowerPlex. If you would like to feel the Fizzy Vantage, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15 at checkout to save 15% off any full-priced nutrition product. That's NUGGET15 at checkout, and you can find a direct link to the coupon right there in your podcast app. This episode is also brought to you by Crimped. This might be the best tool in the app store when it comes to training for rock climbing. I've been wanting to work on my leg and hip flexibility for a weird heel hook move on one of my projects here in Waco. And I jumped into the app the other day just to see what they had. And sure enough, they have a hip and leg flexibility workout. It's perfect. It lays out the four exercises I should be working on. There's videos for each one that show me exactly what to do. And there's a built-in timer to tell me how long to hold each stretch. I hate stretching and crimped made it feel easy. I'm gonna do it again tomorrow before I try my project. If you are a self-coached climber and you want proven workouts to improve your bouldering or your finger strength or endurance, flexibility, you name it, crimped has you covered. So check it out. Crimped is spelled crimp with a D at the end, all one word, and you can find it in the App Store for iOS or on Android, or you can use the web-based version at crimped.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm very excited about my episode today with Hans Florine, Hollywood Hans. Hans has racked up an incredible list of accomplishments in his 38 years of climbing, but he is best known for holding the speed record on the nose on El Cap eight separate times. Yeah, eight separate times over the span of like 27 years. It's crazy. He's also climbed the nose 112 times, which is more than anybody else. He's climbed the nose with more than 100 different people. He loves this route so much he wrote a book about it. Literally, it's called On the Nose, A Lifelong Obsession with Yosemite's Most Iconic Climb. Super good book. I actually listened to the audiobook before interviewing Hans. So it was super fun to hear some of those stories rehashed here and to hear a bunch of new ones that I hadn't heard before. So if you love this conversation, I definitely recommend checking out his book. We also talked about speed climbing before Hans was Mr. Nose. Uh, he was a internationally renowned speed climber. He actually won the first international speed climbing championships in 1991. And it was really fun to hear about that and how speed climbing as a sport has evolved from then until the Olympics last year. We talked about some of his earliest ascents of El Cap. Fun fact is that Hans Florin failed the first time he climbed the nose. 
Uh, it took them 12 hours to do the first four pitches. And when he set the speed record with Yuji Hirayama some years ago, he said they climbed those four pitches in 17 minutes. So pretty remarkable to hear about this guy's evolution as a climber, as a big wall and L cap expert and specialist. And it was fun. We talked about other routes he's done on El Cap as well. He's climbed El Cap 182 times, more than anybody. So not just the nose. He's climbed a bunch of routes on the big cheese, as they say. Hans also shared his top three tips for being more efficient on a big wall. I think those are relevant for any multi-pitch climb, not just climbing fast on El Cap. And he talked about the value of doing hard things and his do hard things challenge that he started with his wife, Lisbeth. So a very fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy this one. If you want to learn more about Hans, I put links to all the things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And that should do it. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Hans Florine. Well, Hans, Florine, it is really good to talk to you again, and thank you so much for being here. Well, it's great to be on the nugget. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start off by asking you about your scheduling and about exacting time. And uh, we we had this, I had this written down on my calendar for 8.03 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And that was <laughs> because of a suggestion from you. And then I got a chance to listen to your audiobook over the last few weeks. And you had an, another example in your book. I think you were climbing with uh, Eric uh, Weinemer. Am I getting that name right? Yeah, it's a tough one. Weinemer, yeah. Okay, okay. And you had your whole ascent of the nose like planned out to the minute and i just think that's hilarious can you <clears throat> can you tell me is that just a joke or is that real like how do you think about scheduling your time and why these funny little unrounded scheduling numbers there's a lot to delve into there but um i like numbers um and i was brought up a uh, you know standard middle class whatever white kid um my dad was officer in the military and we i i like military time um which is separate from this exacting time but because you don't have to put am pm on it and you know the europeans do military 24-hour time and but let's get around to the exacting thing is that, that often you know when you say be for the interview at 10 I mean, people applying for frigging jobs will often show up at 10.01 or 10.02, which is just to me like, you shouldn't get the job. I mean, here you are trying to get a job and you show up. And often it's not even one minute late, it's five or 10 minutes late. Like they think that's socially correct to show up late for it. And you know, when you run a business, like I managed a climbing gym for almost 10 years. And if you have a party and parents are showing up with their kids at 10 and the people, staff that are supposed to hope, help them show up at 10, that's that's messed up. They got to show up 10 minutes early so that they can actually start the party at 10 or 15 minutes early. Right. And so just for myself, I realized, you know, in a very philosophical way, the only thing you have really is time. 
You know, you can always get more money. And there's a famous quote, you know, you can always get more money. You just can't get more time. So you respect other people's times by showing up when you say you're going to show up. I mean, I, I'm feverish to get in as many pitches as I can in the a day and if someone like lollygags around and has a long lunch or breakfast or whatever and they say they're going to meet me at nine at the parking lot to the crag and they don't get there till 10 30 it's like should i just lost six pitches of climbing right or normal people would have lost three pitches but whatever or if you know. you're trying the nose you just lost 25 pitches yeah exactly <laughs> or you don't get <laughs> done climbing into time to get to the bar the restaurant afterwards mm. and you know they people could say well you don't need to go to the you know three minutes after or 22 minutes after i'm like well it calls people attentions to it because if you just say meet me at 10 30 or 11 i swear most people almost think that it's they don't want to be right on time or a minute early because then they're showing i don't know too eagerness or whatever so i try to throw up something a wrench in things and say let's meet at 11 58 you know, and they're like, what about noon? And I'm like, how about 1158? Because <laughs> <laughs> if they're asking for noon, it means they probably actually know they can't make it all 15, right? Because mm. they've got some other appointment. I anyway, I respect people's time. So I try to be exacting about it. And I, yeah. No, I'm glad I asked that. I knew that would be interesting. I just knew it would be interesting. <laughs> But it's it's funny, it actually reminded me of uh, an old uh, girlfriend that I had. She would always set her alarms like kind of funny like that, you know, like it was never it was never six o'clock. It was like six o three or it was never seven o'clock. It was like, you know, six forty two or seven eleven or just these random little numbers. She had like a whole list of these different alarms that she would use. And she would just kind of scroll through them and just like pick one that felt right for that that day. And I started doing that after dating her. This is back when I had a normal job and had to set an alarm every day. And I quite like that. I like, you know, waking up at 8.02 instead of 8 o'clock on the dot. It just kind of adds a little bit more texture and color. And you don't feel so much like you're stuck in Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray, you know, just like right. repeating the same exact formula day after day. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny. I mean... I logged in here for the Zoom call at the top of the hour, had a few minutes to spare, which was quite nice. And then you literally did log in like exactly at 8.03, 8.03 my time <laughs> on the dot. Well, you know, in this new world of like most of your interactions are Zoom or some sort of virtual meeting, whoever's coordinating or, you know, adminning the meeting, if they signed on right at 10, most people would, who also signed on at 9.59 or 10 or whatever, you don't have it open yet. So right. as an admin for these meetings, you actually need to be there and kind of do your little AV checks and make sure everything's working, technology, blah, blah, blah. You know, you should anyway, mm -hmm. at least four or five minutes before. So you have time to troubleshoot things, unplug your router and replug it back in, whatever it is you got to do. You <laughs> right, know? right. Yeah. I want to ask you this. So you've also traveled a lot. You've traveled all over the world. Uh, I have some specific questions about travels that you've done. What is your relationship with time and scheduling when you go to some of these other countries that just treat it differently uh, culturally? You know, like if, I, I don't know if you've been to Spain, but you go to Spain and try to uh -huh. tell someone to show up for dinner at, you know, 9.03 p.m. or whatever and who knows when they're going to show up? Have you have you right. experienced that or struggled with that? 
uh, I, I'm aware and I'm a chameleon where I go. Um, maybe a little bit too far that um, in, in things not regarding time, but like I, I, you know, I enjoy and get into the Spanish not eating dinner at 6 p.m. or 5 p.m. or 7 p.m. They eat dinner starting at, you know, they start ordering their dinner at 10 p.m. And who knows when they're going to get done. But you just, I'm pretty good at that sort of chameleon lifestyle changing to where the people are you know the first couple nights it's pretty painful you've gone to sleep at 1 a.m and sometimes they get up to go climbing at 7 a.m and then you got to do that wow you know. how do they climb so damn hard what's up with that <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> probably good wine I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah well um as you know, you would expect, as people listening would expect, I have a whole list of questions about El Cap and about the nose. You are Mr. Nose. I mean, you've climbed El Cap 182 times. Is that correct? Have you have you done it since yes. we last talked three weeks ago? No. <laughs> okay. No, it's not, not good weather. Although I heard that there's a bunch of people up there trying to do the, you know, the red point hard stuff on all the free routes there, which to me is just totally not my my bag but um yeah when there's of course you know the don wall got sent in january back 2014 or something and it's highly unusual to get you know a week of clear weather in january mm. that's what people shoot for now because it's just crisp dry cool weather got it and i'll call this out for all the uh you know there's always people that want to criticize you it's i've actually only climbed quote unquote, the real big wall routes on El Cap a hundred and I don't know, 62 times, but I count the East buttress. I've done that 13 times now and West face like 12 times. So yeah. But man, count on you to know. Tourists the, don't know the difference. Totally. Yeah. And count on you to know the exact numbers. How many of those ascents were or have been on the nose, the route, the nose itself? 112 ascents on the nose. And so far, no one's downgraded that as a, not a real big wall route. So that's good. Yeah, I don't know. It's been climbed in less than two hours. Yeah. How big yeah. could it be? There's probably people that sit on a project that long at Shelf Road, probably. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, okay. I have tons of questions about El Cap and the nose. But before that, I actually wanted to start with kind of one of my bigger curiosities, knowing that I was going to be talking to you um, something that people may or may not know about you is that you had a really long stint as a uh, competition climber, as a speed climber, and you were very successful and undefeated for years on the speed climbing tour. And with the Olympics showcasing in the last year and seeing how far climbing has come and competition climbing has come and, and having it, you know, showcased on this world stage like that, I thought it'd be really fun to have you take us back to the very first world championship. This is 1991 in Frankfurt, Germany. Is that right? Yes. And you were there and I believe you won the speed competition at the first ever climbing world championship. Can you just describe it? Can you describe what it was like and give us some of the color and the texture of what was happening in indoor climbing at that time 30 years ago? Yeah. Uh, well, that was my first trip to Europe and me and all the other Americans that were there 
you know, maybe the exception of Robin Herbersfield, because she'd been there a few, uh, a season before us, but, you know, Nancy Fagan, Ian Powell, Doug Inglekirk, Steve Schneider, Steve Schneider had been once before, but we, and then there was like the Kevin and Kelly Wilson twins from Canada. It was all, we were all really young and bright eyed and bushy tailed and we go to the Nuremberg comp and like, there's this big Mitsubishi sign or whatever. And, and the Frankfurt was Mitsubishi sponsored. And we're like from the U S and like no mainstream company is going to sponsor a, you know, a competition in the U S you might get like, you know, blue water ropes or something sponsoring, but definitely not a car company. So hmm. our eyes were as big as saucers, just like, wow. And then here's this wall that's better than any wall we've ever seen in our life. And it's only up for four days in some, you know, wow. grand auditorium, right? Like, so, you know, here's a, you know, back then 1991, a million dollars, we heard there was a million dollars spent to put up this wall for the Frankfurt thing. And we're like, wow, for, you know, four days of practice and two days of the event, like that's insane to us that there was that much cultural and, you know, financial support for the sport um, from where we were coming from, right? We were winning a national event uh, you know the month before and we got maybe two hundred dollars and a free rope right <laughs> and here's these i think the year before we had heard lynn won a car actually um at the nuremberg top which was just crazy <laughs> right to us wow so yeah. it was quite a jump shift in cultural just acceptance of what we were doing right mm -hmm. and um you know you don't you don't have in climbing the tiger woods who you would never run into if you go to a putt putt course or a golf course, but in climbing, you know, I had already kind of jumped out of my yuppie job, went in a van and here I was camped next to Bobby Benson, who was arguably, you know, one of the top three women's names in climbing in the world. Um, certainly in the U S right. And like, wow, I'm camping next to her and cragging next to her. Right. You know, and, um, our second was our second, I think it was our, no, our first year in Europe, Lynn Hill invited us over to boulder on her bouldering wall in her home in Aix-en-Provence area. So we're like, we weren't so much starstruck because, you know, the sport allows for that, right. It allows for you to climb next to your hero. It wouldn't be unheard of that, you know, Alex Honnold would come to your local gym, right. Just right. And be working out there because he's on some film shoot for National Geographic or something. <laughs> um, and he probably would say hello to you if you said hello to him. Right. Right. Um, but we still were psyched to be with the number one people. And as a, you know, American melting pot boy, I was still enamored with like, oh, I'm you know, hanging out with these French people and, and German people and, and Japanese people and, you know, all speaking English and I can talk with them and it's just kind of super exciting. And, you know, leading up to that speed climbing, they were still trying to figure out what to do. Um, trying to get back to your question of like what the whole scene was, but I would, I went to, I think two world cups before that. Um, and one of them was you come out we were in an in a isolation zone just like difficulty climbing you'd come out and you'd race up this you know it's probably like a 512 or 7a 7a plus to them and you know it's going to take not you know the guys now take five seconds to get up a wall that high we were taking you know 50 seconds a minute minute and a half whatever 
Um, it might have been, you know, 7A, 6B plus, uh, 11C or 11D, but it was hard, right? And we didn't know. We just were trying to get to the top and not fall off because you're disqualified if you fall off. And I went out and did it. And then at the end of the round, they take the top eight and they put you back in isolation. And then they take the top four and they put you back in isolation. So it wasn't a head-to-head thing. They're just trying to figure out what speed climbing is. And each time I was stunned, they kept telling me like, you're the fastest time. And I'm like, I was crawling up that thing, but you know how it feels like you're, but I just, uh, rushed enough that, um, I won that thing it was down in, um, Clusone, Italy, I think. And I think I won one in Germany. And when we got to Frankfurt, everyone goes, well, Hans, now you're not going to win because, uh, Rachmatov is there from the Eastern Bloc countries and he's never lost. And then someone goes, well, actually, Rachmatov lost to one person. He lost to Jackie Goddard, but he's going to be there too. <laughs> and so I hadn't ever competed against either of them. And I was just like, oh, I guess I'll take, you know, third or fourth or fifth or whatever, because all the best people will be there. And I got, I think I got really lucky is that I didn't have to go against Rachmatov, you know, how they do. Uh, like seeding. And- Indians. Now there's four. Yeah. So somehow it worked out that I don't think I had to go against him in the semifinals or whatever, I went up against somebody who would have been fourth, I guess. And so I, in the finals, I got to go against Jackie and they didn't have the thing now where there's two exact same routes. They had routes that were pretty much completely different. Um, but they, they, I think they made them about 11 plus, right? And it was, it was pretty much consistent that one of them was a little bit harder than the other. So you'd go up and then you'd switch routes and you'd go up again and you'd add your times. Ah, oh, okay. And at, the, and at the end of the first round, usually the person, I forget which route was harder, but say the one on the right was harder, that person would be a second or or more slower than the other person and they'd switch and then their times would be almost the same, mm. right? And then they declare a winner when they added times together. So there's a little bit of suspense. And I could tell Jackie was sort of a gregarious, showy person like me. And so the normal rules, I think, were that you put a hand on the wall and one foot on the wall to start. And me and him were like, well, this is kind of fun. Let's let's start a meter back from the wall. And, and when the gun goes off, we'll jump up and go do it. I'm like, <laughs> okay. So it was pretty, I'm just kind of painting this picture of just how kind of, how kind of wacky friendly it was. It wasn't this serious, you know, Olympic gold medal thing. And podium and and the pomp and circumstance that you would have in olympics it was more just oh let's goof around and um sure enough he was on i think the faster route first so he won the first thing and the crowd was germany so it wasn't really france or english so everybody cheered for both of us and then on the second go we switched and i beat him but nobody knew right and so Mm. they waited until the ceremony to tell us, because even though there's like a digital <laughs> clock up there, that's not the official clock, right? Uh. <laughs> and I, f- I forget the exact timing, but I, I know that I, I, my combined time was less than, I don't know, a half a second or maybe a 10th of a second faster than him. So I won by a hair, right? And uh, yeah, it was, ridiculous right i got this <laughs> marble base trophy with a big huge you know looks like a soccer world cup it's like three feet high and the dang thing weighed like i think 40 pounds right and 
like, what am I going to do this? I'm in Europe. I'm supposed to be here another month. What am I doing with this statue? But it was, it was terrific, right? We poured the champagne and then drank up and all that goofy stuff that you would do if you were at like a NASCAR race, right? So oh, quite my fun. Gosh. I, end, um, I ended up giving the trophy to Doug Inglekirk because he was leaving the following on a Monday or Tuesday. And the only way he could take it back was to carry it on on the plane. And like, everyone was like, dude, good, congratulations. Let me buy you a drink, you know? So he got to pretend like he was the World Cup winner or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> He's an honest guy, so he probably didn't. But, you know, everyone was just like, way to go, man. Yeah. That's so, so wild. I mean, times. just just thinking about what climbing was in the U.S. at the time in the early 90s. I mean, I think you were still like, epoxying rocks on the side of cement walls like at the you know like holding up a bridge yeah. or something you know like these pylons holding up a bridge and just traversing around so i have to imagine like did that just have a massive effect on your self-perception as a rock climber and what you might be capable of and things to fly to germany to see the scale and the importance that they were placing on this event and then to win and to to beat these two people that you had been told were unbeatable, you know, they'd, they'd never yeah. lost. Well, I'd say like the more impactful thing than like beating people was that they're just humans over there. And they had this, you know, grand culture that was supporting them. And, you know, there was dozens, I think, I mean, the perception was there was dozens of climbers that were making a living at climbing mm. and categorically none of us were doing that you know with the exception of maybe well lynn was lynn hill and robin probably was getting by um she had just i believe she just left a business that she had sold and created so she was probably lifting off of those but by and large just americans there was nobody making a living climbing and to go over there and see the support they had and see how just welcoming they were of us to come and visit them and whatnot and um i'd say the thing that kind of cemented that this was my tribe was that i had something going for me that the other climbers and comps didn't is that i had ha had the speed record on the nose although i had lost it to peter croft and dave schultz the word got out that i was a contender for that and then the next year when i got the record with peter croft that's what people like greeted me as they're like, Hey, congratulations on the speed record. And I was like, do you mean like the world cup? I just won last week. They're like, no, no, you own the record on the nose, you know? Wow. And that, that same conversation happened to me in Europe three, four, five, six years after I'd gotten the record with Peter. And it made me realize like how important Yosemite is to the international climbing world. And, you know, for that matter, the nose of El Cap, how it's the preeminent, you know, most famous big wall route in the world. And here's it in my backyard. And I don't ever want to take it for granted because you know, the world climbing community votes that that's a cool place, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that sort of I, foot in the door, if you will, with people was just amazing to have that, you know, albeit in this niche community. I mean, I always tell people like we go d into Paris and nobody knows who we are <laughs> an airport, you know, it's not like Tiger Woods, right? We're, we disappear into obscurity if we're not at a crag or a climbing gym. <laughs> so we get to live this dual life that 
true famous people don't. You know? mm, right. Yeah. I want to ask you a question from a listener. Um, one more question about speed climbing competitions, and then we can just dive headfirst into the nose and El Cap. This is a question from Anna. And Anna wanted to know, uh, she writes, ask him about his early days of speed competitions and how they differ from the modern era. In particular, I'd be interested on his thoughts in his thoughts on the direction that speed climbing has gone with the standardized route. Does he think it is the best format for competition speed climbing as compared to other possible formats, such as the Arco Rockmaster dual format that involve a novel route each time at a slightly higher difficulty level? Yeah, what are your thoughts watching the Olympics and just how different speed climbing looks from how it used to and, and how it still does in some of these other competition formats? So that was Anna, is that yeah. correct? Yep. Or Anna. Thanks, Anna, for the question. Although probably not we're not live, but um I did do the Rock Masters and I did lose there, by the way. <laughs> I didn't lose okay. There. Um and I, I here's an interesting note for that. Again, we'll go on these tangents, but when I took third place at the Rock Master, it was my first time at the Rock Master, um, they invited me because I won the Frankfurt World Cup. Um, Jackie had won it every year prior to that, which I think was three or three or four years running before that. And Rakhmatov took second, I think. And I believe some new Russian took second and Jackie took first. So I took third, um, but I won 15 million lira, which, um, was, you know, this is before the Euro dollar, which I was just so psyched, you know, there's these beautiful colored bills and stuff. And that worked out too, I think about 11, 1200 us dollars. Oh, wow. Right. 15, 15 million lira. And like, that's more money than I had ever won anything. Right. And it was for third place. It wasn't even for first. Right. Um, so I was able to live for a couple months off of that in Europe. It was really nice. Um, and they do have routes that are similar to each other at Rockmaster back then. I haven't been to Rockmaster for since, uh, I don't know, 97 or something. So I don't know what the format is now, but, um, then they tried to have similar exact same routes, right? And their, their little thing at Rockmaster is the anchor point is something like, I don't know, three meters below where the finishing hold is that you tap. So when you jump off the wall, you, you actually have to leave the wall to jump up and tap the buzzer. So you're in midair and now your anchor points, you know, three meters below you. <laughs> so you take this huge whip, which is part of the whole experience, right? Wow. And it's pretty like your first go up there doing your practice run, you're like, you get to the top of the hold and you're like, holy shoot, the buzzer's like a meter above me, right? So you have to dyno for it. and catch air and you know you're going to go for this big whip and you look at the blares and they have this loop of slack just laying <laughs> on the ground it's like great <laughs> so you really gotta kind of get into that silliness there um but to comment on like what they do now you know i know jackie got a, um helped uh if not solely choreographed how the route is now for the fixed route i, I get the reasoning was so that year after year, they could say, hey, did you ever beat the world record compared mm. to, you know, kind of like the 100 meter dash. Are you as fast as Jesse Owens, you know, back in 1930s? Well, yeah, it's a flat track. And, you know, there's our track and field things. You got to have certain wind ratings and stuff. But I think their reasoning behind making the route the same 
forever was that they could compare. And I get that, but I kind of wish that they hadn't done that because I think part of the skill of climbing and not just speed climbing, but climbing is to learn how to read a route, be decisive and execute whatever is required, right? And if you make it the same, then you're making it more like a choreographed dance that not only a choreographed dance, but a choreographed dance that doesn't change with time. Like, you know, skaters do things on a choreographed ice skating performance that they didn't do 30 years ago because athletes just didn't know to do it and weren't, it's not that they weren't fit enough. They just didn't have the knowledge to do a triple gainer or whatever it is. And now we do things, you know, climbing that we couldn't think of doing back in 1995. Right. Um, and maybe even when the route was fixed, I think it was 2009 or eight or something like that. So I also think that non-speed climbers would do better at speed climbing. If the route was different, do better against right. pure speed climbers and therefore it would be more accepted by everybody. Right. Mm. And this kind of comes to like the origins of climbing, like, I don't know, the Greeks, right. Or the Olympics, like there's Mount Olympus, you go hike up a mountain, right. It's always been known that success is very closely tied to, do you get off the mountain before the storm comes before nightfall, you know, the Everest turnaround time, your speed is integral to success. Not only that, but your decision-making, right. So for those reasons, I, I, if it was up to me, I would have the Olympic or world cup speed route change every event, mm. not every year, but every event, you know, since they now have this regular, I guess, credential wall that's, you know, five degrees overhanging for 12 and a half meters. Great. Put it on there, but change, change what the, the route is might favor one person over another, um, different times, but, Hey, that's what climbing does. It favors some people over others on different routes. Right. Right. So, yeah, it is so interesting that we, we may be just locked into this thing. You know, I, I don't know how much thought Jackie put into the route, like probably a lot, but I'm sure he didn't expect for it to be the speed climbing route for ever, <laughs> for, the, for the rest of time. Mm. So that's an, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. Let's back up a step where this is not going to be chronological. Um, but I, I'm really glad we captured that. And I, I would love to hear now going back to the big walls in Yosemite. Of course, there's your first trips up the nose. I want to hear about those. But I believe your very first time climbing El Cap was on the South A, 1986. So five years before going over to Germany. And you told me a really interesting story about that very first time on the wall when we first talked. Can you describe that first trip up El Cap? It's just, it's just amazing to contrast that with what you've done, you know, in the, in the last 35 years on that chunk of granite, but I'd love to hear about the very first time. So I would have been climbing just barely three years then. And the majority of my climbing was Joshua tree, one pitch climbing where we couldn't actually afford the gear to lead most of the routes. So we would just buy, you know, 50, 60 foot pieces of webbing and go around top rope for everything in Joshua tree. Um, it was pretty rare that we led anything. 
And in Yosemite, you don't have that choice. And I had made trips to Yosemite and I would mostly stick to, you know, Green Jag and Mr. Natural, uh, the first pitch of Serenity and Sons of Yesterday. We would go and do one pitch climbs and we'd only buy enough gear to do the routes we wanted to do. Like Mr. Natural was really a cheap climb to do, even though it's a hard 510. It's like all you needed was, you know, size, whatever, half inch nuts. And so you could do it with seven nuts. And maybe if you were, we actually, me and my first partner teamed together and we bought a, a one, number one friend. So we had one friend with us, but um, I didn't have the experience of going up multi-pitch routes very much, right? Unless it was like a five, seven or six or something. And my sister who was in med school and military had accumulated some friends and one of her friends was a climber. He happened to be a doc and a special forces guy. His name's Winston Warm. And um, I don't know if I was, I wasn't intimidated by him, but I'm just like, oh, he's, you know, special forces guy. He can do anything. <laughs> he's like a, gr a green beret, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he can start fire with rocks and a twig, right? <laughs> um, so we'll be fine. <laughs> but Anybody who knows anything about big balls that, you know, doesn't matter if you can kill somebody with a straw or a pen, it doesn't, it's not going to help you up on a big wall. Um, but we went up and, you know, after climbing a bit, I realized like my free climbing ability was probably about the same as his. He, I think he had a good bit of more logistical skills about handling the ropes and the gear. And we're just like, oh, well, I just followed his lead, so to speak. Let's go do the south because there's ledges on it. We'll be fine. And we didn't either. We didn't know that the classic was to go up the free blast and then wrap down and come up the next day, or we just didn't want to do that or didn't have the ropes to do it. Maybe we just blasted off from the ground and thought, you know, we'll do this thing with one bivy, maybe two. And, um, we thought, Oh, we'll get to these certain ledges. Um, I think the sewer pitch is just below that or just above that. There's a really nice ledge to get on. And we thought we would get there or El Cap Spire or something. Sure enough, we get to the hard pitch right below El Cap Spire, the 513, which now most people go around to do free ride or the off with, which we didn't know then. But nighttime falls, I'm halfway up this 513 pitch. Of course, we weren't free climbing. We we're just aiding it. But we didn't bring headlamps because we didn't have headlamps. <laughs> Um, they existed then of course, but, um, we just didn't bring them. We thought we'll just stop climbing when it gets dark, I guess. Well, we were halfway through this hard pitch and the, the anchor we were blamed from was a very sloped, what you can't even call it a ledge. It was just a slope. It's on top of the ear and I couldn't proceed in the dark anymore. I was basically feeling my way up. I had met Eric Weinmayer, so I didn't know that blind people could climb then. <laughs> so I just <laughs> lowered back to the ledge at whatever, 8 p.m. at night. And we just hung in our harnesses all night. Oh. Kind of sleeping, but kind of not. Because your legs fall asleep and you have to move them and then move again. And I mean, thank goodness it was, you know, mild weather. But we basically didn't get any sleep and it got light enough. Finally, we went going, got going again. And <laughs> for enough, you know, the alcove is right there. 30 feet above where I stopped is this beautiful giant ledges we could have slept on. But... <laughs> We couldn't get to them, right? We're just total bumblings. We just didn't know. So we suffered below this, you know, kind of oasis ledge, if you would. And the next day, same thing happened. We get, I was in the middle of the headwall, I think, or Winston was, and um, 
it gets dark and like we just there's nothing we can do so we lower back down a rope length and a half to Sulatwa ledge which is again to call it a ledge is a bit generous it's probably the width of a good encyclopedia and maybe four feet long and we kind of curled up together spooned and shivered on that ledge for the night and woke up the next morning climbed we made it to the top i think in the late afternoon and we were i think we ran out of water like that morning or something so it wasn't like three days without water i think it was just that day but then there's you know a normally hour and a half two hour hike off was probably four for us because we didn't know the way and we were exhausted <laughs> my mom saw me like you could see her draw drop they happened to be in the meadow when we came out because it was like there was a family vacation going on or something and yeah she was visibly scared by seeing how thin and drawn i guess my face was from three days on the wall yeah yeah wow i'm a pretty thin guy and to have you know, I didn't weigh in, but I probably lost 10 pounds and starting off thin in the first place. I probably Jesus. looked like I got off the train in Auschwitz or something. <laughs> Man, I remember you telling me that you totally swore off big walling, big wall climbing after that ascent. And that is fascinating to me, you know, given that it's you, given that you've now climbed El Cap, whatever, either 162 or 182 times. Um, more than anybody else, and you've climbed the nose 112 times, what made it stick? Like, what was it that drew you back to it? And what did it look like to eventually fall in love with it? Because I don't know if that's rare. I mean, maybe the people that are most obsessed with things, it didn't come easy. And that's part of the excitement and the love is that they see the progress um, from a, you know, a bad first impression or whatever. But it's, it was still really surprising to me to learn that. I just expected that you, it was just the most exciting thing and you totally loved it. But what, what brought you back to it after that first horrible experience? I think a, a number of things. One is that, um, you know, back then, I say back then, like, uh, you know, those were the days or not those are the days, but I think back then as a climber you're like well you know i'll get around to doing mountaineering and i'll do bouldering and i'll do try ice climbing and i'll try expedition climbing i'll try you know trad rock climbing sport climbing whatever i'll i'll try all those things and i'll become a well-rounded climber and in california you could have spent you could spend your whole life doing bouldering or sport climbing or for that matter ice climbing i guess um or mountaineering but it just seemed like yosemite's here and like to be a california climber to not climb the nose and for that matter like the regular northwest face of half dome is like this just obvious hole in your resume i don't really want to call it resume but just in your climbing experience and i'm like ah gotta go do the nose you know so even though i was kind of uh, not excited after the salad they ascent. I mean, I basically coined it vertical camping after that, you know, it's a real, it's a ton of work to vertical camp. And, um, I felt like I got to do the nose and a couple of years went by and I teamed up with Mike Lopez, who was a track and field athlete at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo along with myself. And we were both pretty fit. So we're just thinking, ah, you know, got a couple more years of climbing experience under me and, 
I'm a little more fit and understand. And, you know, we went up and completely failed on the nose, even though I had, you know, two, two and a half more years of experience, we completely failed, failed. What does failed mean? We, you know, we didn't die and we actually didn't get hurt. We just got four pitches up after 12 hours of climbing, which is insane. When I think about being on a single pitch for three hours, that's just, I couldn't bear it now, but. I know that you know, um, how fast would you be able to climb those four pitches nowadays? Or how fast have you climbed those four pitches? Well, my best time was 17 minutes with <laughs> Yuji. <laughs> yeah. From 12 uh, hours to crazy, 17 right? minutes. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. And when I think about like how fit I was as a, you know, 22 year old or whatever back then in the late 80s, like, that I couldn't, that, you know, I was old and feeble when I did it in 17 minutes with Yuji. Like it just shows how much climbing rewards experience and, and yeah, it rewards experience. I don't even want to say skill. It re rewards an amazing amount of experience, right? Mm. I probably could do as many pull-ups when I failed that first time as I did when I was with Yuji. I probably could run a mile faster back then when I failed on the nose, then I did climb with UG, you know, all these fitness things. So it's just skill and awareness of the rock. And, um, I mean, I tell people that like, if you've climbed in the Southeast on sandstone, like, and you come and you're going to try it and you're a five twelve climber and you try to climb a five twelve on granite, doesn't matter if it's in Yosemite, but if it was, you're probably not going to be able to do it. You know, it's so different. Right. Right? Just like I was doing five twelves in Joshua tree but I couldn't do the five ten C first pitch of the nose, you know. Wow. Because it's different granites, different type climbing. It's scary. There's this twenty five hundred foot cliff above you. It's crazy, you know. So uh, I'd say, but you know, getting drawn back to it because it's this thing I thought you had to do for your climbing resume was a, a great part of it. And after me and Mike Lopez failed, we like came back the next year and we did it two, I think two, with two bivvies. Um, so approximately two and a half days or something. And even after that, I thought, okay, I've done this. I've done this big wall climbing, but Steve Schneider kind of kept showing up on my radar at competitions and things. And I, I was, I caught wind that he had climbed the whole route by himself in a single day. And I'm like, how the hell did he do that? Like, I don't, I just don't understand how he could do that. And this is not, you know, Alex Honnold free soloing. This is roping up every pitch. I'm just, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. Right. And, and I was even more crazed that like Doug Inglekirk, who I knew almost did it in a day. Um, Cause I know how slow he climbs at sport climbing, <laughs> but it's not, again, it's not the actual climbing speed. It's your ability to handle ropes, put gear in, take gear out, all this, which, Mm. Doug was amazingly experienced at, you know, over me apparently. And so I asked Steve like, Hey, let's go for the speed record on the nose, which, you know, looking back was completely insane for me to ask him with his legendary status and experience on El Cap. And I had been up it twice, you know, and barely. Right. And the only reason he said yes is because he thought this wonky, blonde haired dude Hans was going to team up with somebody else to do it you know <laughs> what was the speed record at the time what were you trying to beat 
Well, they hadn't really recorded it exactly, but we figure that it took um, Peter Croft and John Backer about nine hours to do it. And that was when they did Half Dome and El Cap in a day, right? Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Right. So they weren't going for the speed record. It's just we figured they probably had the fastest time. I think actually Xavier Bonegard from Europe had the record at nine hours and five minutes with partners. So, yeah. Peter Croft told that story in uh, in the conversation I did with him a couple of years ago. And it was just like the result of the first time he ever took a rest day, basically. Like Backer convinced him <laughs> that rest days are helpful. And he's like, mm, I don't know. But he, he talked him into it. And so he just laid in his tent and ate saltine crackers for an entire day. And then they just, you know, climbed Half Dome and El Cap in whatever, 18 hours. <laughs> yeah. Just incredible. I would- I would imagine he takes rest days now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he does. One of my other, you know, in case Peter's, one of my favorite stories I hear from Peter, and maybe you talked about it, was that they, I don't know if it was the North Face or somebody like friends talked him into going to the Himalayas to do something or the big mountains over over there. And they're like, um, what did they say? Most people lose weight when they go on these expeditions right so they told him to eat a bunch of food and, and gain weight before he goes right uh-huh and so yeah i think this is typical of alpinists that they lose weight because it's hard to eat at altitude and stuff and all this right and so hey you're gonna lose weight peter and so he's like all right um i'll gain some weight and so he eats and forgive me peter if i get the story wrong but he put get, he gains a little bit of weight, he tries, and then they goes on the expedition. Like, it turns out that like you know you're hiking for miles and miles to get trekking into this, that, and the other, and all these people are getting exhausted and the rest. Of it. But all this hiking and stuff—that's what Peter does. Mm-hmm. So while everybody else was exhausted and tired and couldn't eat, like he was like, I need to do something. I, you guys aren't doing enough activity for me. So he gained weight on the expedition. Because <laughs> everyone was just sitting around with nothing to do. So he ate, I guess, you know, classic. Like nobody had enough activity things for him to do. So oh my gosh. Weight. Yeah. And the expedition to the Himalaya was lower than his like baseline of output. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, incredible. Yeah, it's kind of like Alex Lowe doing pull-ups in base camp. I'm sure Peter was like, trying to find a tree branch to do pull-ups on or something, you know, going crazy. Yeah. Oh, man. <clears throat> okay. I reached out to uh, Craig DiMartino last night and got a text message from him this morning. I told him that you were going to be coming on. Um, one of my favorite conversations I've had on the podcast for people that haven't listened to that one with Craig, it's episode 91 if you want to check it out. But I just want to... listen to it. <laughs> oh, you did? Great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he told a... He told a hilarious story about climbing with you that we can come back to. But I want to ask this very simple question from Craig, because it really gets to the heart of Hans Florine. Like, like, what is it that makes this guy tick? And Craig just wanted to know, what is it about the nose that so captivates you? What is it about that route? You know... If you, I'm holding up the book now for you to see, right? On the nose. Yeah, you literally wrote the book. And um, I mean, if you stand in El Cap Meadow and you you have your back to El Cap, I I can't go on a tangent, but if you have your back to El Cap and you look at Cathedral, 
that would be the most incredible cliff you've ever seen anywhere. Like it's amazing, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it, it would be, everyone would climb the cathedrals like crazy if it wasn't that El Cap was on the other side of the valley. But looking at El Cap, I mean, it's more than a mile wide. It's just a giant thing. And every single day, the sun shadow line, it goes right up the nose. Mm. And um, yeah, in the late day, Salafay side is all lit up and uh, the uh, North American wall is all in the shade. And in the morning, the reverse is true. And, but it's always drawing this line straight up the middle. So it's not only the very definitive south buttress of this amazing cliff, but it's the sun shadow line. And it's just really easy to point someone, oh, where does the line go that you climb? Well, right there up the middle. And it's the longest, you know, toe of the rock to the top anywhere along the wall without being, I don't want to say contriving, but without wandering around a bunch of cracks and stuff, just kind of going straight up the most straightest line you can. It's the longest route. So as an aesthetic thing, it's amazing over anything I've seen anywhere in the world as a if you want to just count like there's cracks, there's face, there's wide, there's thin, there's steep and there's slab. Like it has all those things. There's, there's logistics, like you a crack ends and you have to figure out pendulum over to another one. There's just all these different things that a big wall can throw at you from a bolt ladder to a thin crack to a wide crack. Right. And it has big ledges to sleep on and, there's sections where if you don't climb far enough, you're going to be not sleeping on a big ledge. So it just has everything. Mm. And I'll say this, the most important thing it has is the unknown. I've failed to climb it 14 times now, you know, arrived at the base, planned to get to the top and didn't make it to the top. So oh, really? I think that's important for climbers is that the outcome needs to be unknown. And a you know a challenge, right? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that actually, and I'm curious. I'd love to hear what some of the reasons are because that first time makes perfect sense. You go up four pitches; it takes you 12 hours, and you're like, okay, we got we got to be better at this before we try to go up this whole thing. But then you succeeded the next year, and you know, reading or listening to your audiobook, it's just this string of experiences, like a little faster and. Um, a little more adventure, just speed climbing the thing. I wouldn't have guessed that there were 14 times in there that you hadn't succeeded. What are some of the reasons that you didn't succeed on some of those attempts? Mother nature, some of them. Um, I went to the base, I think the first week of December with Greg Murphy. <laughs> and um, we got, I think, to the top of the second pitch and it was cold and we're like, okay, it's cold, but Greg has done the nose in a day numerous times by then. And I had too. this was probably late nineties. And we hear this rumble and then uh, we look up and we see just giant sheets of ice coming down. And, Oof. you know, um, Tommy Caldwell explains this in his Donwall thing. Like they tried to put this sheet up thing to block the sheets of ice coming down. On. And we just, we actually had forgotten our helmets or I think one of us had, and we just tunkered close to the rock and just giant shards of glass ice broke all around us. And somehow miraculously just little spindrift hit us, but it, it was, 
evident that if we were, you know, five feet to the right or 20 feet to the left, we would have been just cut to shreds by ice. Mm. And so we like, hey, maybe we should not go any further. I'm like, yep, <laughs> we should repel. I went and had some hot chocolate or something, <laughs> drove back home. Because I believe we drove up from the bay that morning. Mm. I'm like, huh, I wonder what it's going to be like. Dumbasses. So, you know, weather <laughs> is one thing. Um, other times I've been up and it just was very hot and we're at Dolt Tower and we're like, shit, we have one gallon of water left and there's three of us. You know, we were planning mm. on a one night or two night bivy and we're out of water and it's, which things aren't going to get better. Let's spend the night here in bail. Um, other times I've, I've gotten as high as um, past, just past the great roof with Jim jim herson who i actually later went up and got the speed record with in 2002 but we went up there kind of recon climbing in and he says oh shoot i gotta be back for something for his kids and jim's known for being a bad dad by the way um, but <laughs> this particular time he's like i gotta get back for something and we calculated like is it faster for us to race to the top from here or come down ah let's go down so we repelled all the way from great roof wow just variations on that same thing. I've gotten taken too long to get into the stove legs with a haul bag and stuff and said, uh, we're not going to make it. Maybe we'll be adults and then come down or maybe we just leave all our water there and come down that night. But basically variations on that theme is that we're out of water, low on water, it's too hot, it's too cold, something like that. Mm. And, you know, this is after I had climbed it in, you know, three hours with Yuji. Wow. So yeah. Imagine the frustration. Here I am with a, you know, 80 pound haul bag and totally competent partners, but it's just the middle of the afternoon and it's 99 degrees out and just like your, your enthusiasm just gets cooked. Basically. <laughs> literally, literally cooked. Yeah. Man, there's so many things we can talk about here. Um, I, I want to, yeah. I want to actually jump on something. You just mentioned the stove legs and you're a perfect, per I, lo I love just capturing some of the climbing history, you know, some of the lore around climbing and you're a perfect person to ask questions about the nose too, because you know it better than anybody. How did the stove legs, maybe describe what the stove legs are in case people don't know. I, I mean, I, I think I was first familiar with them watching the speed climbing on the nose documentary from Real Rock and watching you know, Alex Honnold crews up the stove legs without any protection or something, but maybe describe what they are. And then you talked about this in your book, but how they got their name. That is such an incredible story. Wacky stuff. Yeah. Wacky stuff. Yeah. So imagine you go up uh, six pitches, series of cracks and ledges and then cracks and you like look left, look right. Oh, there's something over. So they, you know, they swung over there and Got it. You actually have to swing two sets of cracks before you're in the actual stove legs. And, you know, at that time in the late fifties, they were making things up, so to speak. You know, they had forged their own piton, some they bought, but some they made their own and they curved big pieces of aluminum and steel to make bongs, which were a little bit bigger, but um, that really didn't come along until the sixties making the, the aluminum bombs um and you know they where did they get the steel to get their you know 
their pitons. Um, rumor says they took them out of Ford axles sometimes or Ford um, differentials because the, the iron from that was really good. But, you know, you go to a junkyard and you find stuff and you're looking around and you're like, oh, shit, look at the bottom of that stove. The leg on it's this triangle shape and it kind of tapers at an angle like that would kind of go into a different, different, varying different size cracks, right? So... You know, I didn't know exactly what was in their mind, but you know, you're poking around a junkyard just looking for steel to turn into pitons and like, oh, let's just cut the legs off the stove and it's already in a triangle shape. So it would fit a variety of widths as you pounded it in, right? And so they just drill a hole in that and clip a bean or two. <laughs> and there is this lingo of calling it the stove legs. Some people add the word stove leg cracks on the end, which isn't wrong, but it it makes it probably is a little bit better way to speak clearly to people who maybe don't understand it's you know it's the stove leg cracks but a lot of people will say no just call it the stove legs but uh they're wide cracks that you just you know you most pitons aren't big enough to go in so you, you would need to create something larger certainly they'd use wood blocks too at times but uh, the stove legs worked out perfect size for it Incredible, incredible. So this is Warren Harding and his crew back in the 50s making the very first ascent of the nose. Yeah, um, Coruscant, they, um, Dolt. Of course, Dolt was involved in that um, as well. And yeah, and then, you know, just making crap up. Dolt made a cart that you could haul like, stuff up so he had wheels that would make it roll on the low angle easier, which <laughs> is a little smarter than what you might think. I mean, that's this is why... You know, people ask, what's the normal time people take or the average time people climb the nose? And the answer is infinite, because if you count all the parties that bail, then that they didn't make it, right? So mm. depending on how you want to do the math, I would guess that a third or at least a fourth of people who go up planning to climb the nose don't. They, you know, they realize the hauling's too hard, too too hectic they just don't have all the logistical skills to move quick enough to get to the even the first bivy at Dolt tower so mm. yeah well let's circle back to uh some of your most memorable ascents on the nose and I'll, I'll let you complete that story i just realized that we talked about peter croft and backer and then we got derailed but um yeah I w i'd love to hear of all those 112 ascents what are some of the most memorable ones but maybe Let's wrap up that story. Did you get the speed ascent on that? I guess it would have been your second time attempting to to climb the nose, or I guess your third time after a failed attempt and then a successful two and a half day ascent. So my second descent, yeah, it was two and a half days with Mike Lopez. And then the following year I did it in eight hours and five minutes with Steve Schneider, having never roped up with the guy ever before, not even at a competition or a and there's only three climbing gyms in the country then anyway, but um, never having roped up with the guy before we walked to the base and that was our first time climbing together. Kind of crazy. And on the second, I'm not sure what the reasoning was why he let me lead. Cause I was, you know, totally his junior in every way possible. But on the second pitch, I, I whipped and took like a 25 foot whipper. And I, he told me later, he's like trying to figure out if there's some way he could just tie me off and wrap into the trees and just never see me again. Like, holy shit, you know, <laughs> this guy's a total Gumby, fuck up. Um, but I just, you know, ran right back up to where I had fallen, kept going and 
Um, yeah, we actually, it was really interesting is that Dave Bankston and Steve Gerberdine, who were anybody who's as old as me and climbs as long as I would know their names, they're like the gods of Yosemite climbing. Gerberdine's done more different routes on El Cap than anyone else. And um, they, those guys have put up a bunch of routes on El Cap. They were on the route and they had started like, I don't know, an hour and a half ahead of us or something. And we saw them up in the stove legs and we ended up passing them. I'd be like passing, I don't know, uh, <laughs> trying to think of John Brossler. Is he the fastest speed climber? But it's not a good example, but like passing by. Like Tommy, Tommy and Alex maybe on something. Yeah, yeah. Speed, yeah, it would be like passing them. These guys are up there doing it in a day, just casual, you know, they're off work. And so they were going to go do the nose in a day in a comfortable, whatever, then a comfortable 14, 15 hour ascent probably. And we passed them um, in the stove legs. And like, I realized like I kind of made amends for my fall and fuck up down on the second pinch that we were actually passing these guys. And of course they didn't know who the fuck I was because um, I was nobody, but they like knew Steve Schneider, like, Hey Steve, you know, who's this weird blonde guy <laughs> up with you and like, Oh, that's haunts. All right, cool. Um, so that was just like staggering to me. I, I mean, I'm trying to think of all these comparisons, like, you know, Led Zeppelin inviting you up to sing on stage with them or something, you know, uh, and you're just a ho-dunk YouTuber or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Me and Steve topped out in, eight hours, five minutes. And that was an hour faster than the fastest time as far as we knew. So, wow. Yeah. And as I said, I wasn't really a known person. I, I actually, in Europe, a lot of people, the first trip to Europe, a lot of people thought I was John Backer or thought I was Steve Schneider. A lot of people mm. come up and say, Hey, how's it going, John? And I'm like, I'm not John. <laughs> how's it going, Steve? <laughs> Did you look like Steve? Because I, mean, I, I can see the resemblance. With, okay, okay, yeah. I can see the resemblance with Backer for sure, but I, I don't think I've ever... Yeah. I'm sure I've seen photos of Steve Schneider. That's uh, Shapoopy, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, Dean Feidelman is now uh, caretaking at my house in Yosemite, and he's you know been taking photos since the 70s. He's digitizing some old slides that I have, and I've been, I'm going to leak them out on Instagram as we go along. But a couple pictures you, you see... Schneider from the back in the nineties when we do sport climbing and long blonde hair, you know, muscles in his back. Ah, that's, that's, I thought, Oh, that's me. And then I'd look and go, Oh, he's got pink tights on. That's Steve. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, how long did it take? Was it just after that first speed record? I guess, how did that become such a fascination of yours? Because you went on to hold the record on the nose eight different times if I'm getting that right, with like six different people. And for quite a number of years, for like a decade, it was Hans and someone, and then Peter and somebody, and then Hans and someone, yeah. and then, you know, Dean and somebody, and then you and Peter together. Yeah. What I'm, I'm probably getting the order wrong, but... Well, I don't know how much Peter commented about it in your talk then, but it, it, it was by complete coincidence, him and Dave Schultz were trying to do Salafe in the nose in a day. So they did, did the nose like a week after me and Steve, and they did it in six hours and 40 minutes, which was, Jesus, an hour and 25 minutes faster than us. And that was in the New York Times 
the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Denver Post, and of course in the climate magazines, it was everywhere, right? Wow. And there was not like a mention of like the past record was by Stephen Huss. Our names weren't mentioned at all, but I was like stunned. And my mom was like, I thought you guys, she happened to be there that weekend again. And like, I thought you guys just got the record. I'm like, yeah, but those guys broke in. Like, you know, wow, these guys are in the newspaper. I'm like, all right, I got to impress my mom. I got to get the newspaper. But <laughs> I knew that like Dave Schultz and Peter Croft were immortals and they were locals to the Valley and there's no way anyone's going to go that fast. But the following year, I, I teamed up to climb the nose with Andrus Puvel, who had been a long time kind of friendly rival at competitions. And just like, Oh, let's go. And we, we almost didn't start our watches at the base. We were just going to climb the nose today, but I'm like, Oh, let's just see how we compare. And, I was totally stunned when we got to the top and it was six hours and three minutes. I'm like, wow, this is crazy. This is a year later. Right. And it was again, apparently by coincidence that, uh, Croft and Schultz were going for the link up and they did the nose in four hours and 48 minutes <laughs> a week after us. And again, course, they got in the paper and all this wow. fame and no mention of Andy and me. <laughs> or almost none so wow. uh, it was just like wow here i go and i i didn't even think i could even compete with the immortals and i went faster than them and then of course wind out of your sails they just go and blow us away another a full hour off our time they did it four hours and 48 minutes and yeah just crushed it i believe that's when they also then hopped on the south and did that in a day right after uh, so those guys were killing it and then the following spring, I saw Peter at a slideshow. I think it was in Santa Barbara and went up to him and said, Hey, good job on this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. Let's climb sometime, you know, so people don't think we're like our tribals. And so a month later, we got together and climbed the nose in 422. So the joke I say is that I didn't tell anybody we did it because I figured just one week later, Schultz and Cop would go up and break <laughs> it by another hour. But turns out they were done with their link up so they didn't do it again yeah did you ever get in the newspaper did did that ever play out um well what's interesting is that there was a little postage size stamp of me and peter standing in the parking lot that was in like the letters to the editor climbing like this part you just skim over like <laughs> not paying much attention oh the record got broken again it certainly wasn't in the papers or anything um, <laughs> it wasn't until basically nine years later when Dean and Timmy broke the record that because I did it with a, you know, international famous star, Yuji, I guess, um, for some reason, someone leaked or told some outdoor writer, Peter Fimwright at the San Francisco Chronicle that this was happening. So they came out and we were on the front page of the Chronicle for getting the record. It was amazing. And hmm. Rock and Ice did a cover sh shot of us and stuff. So that was fun. But it took 10 years plus to finally get some notice of it, you know. Mm. But meanwhile, the whole time I'd be traveling in Europe or Asia or anywhere and people would be like, hey, you got the record with Peter Croft. You know, it was like this instant um, door opening thing that was amazing. How how were they how were they finding out? I mean, this is you and Peter did it together in 92. Yeah, yeah. How were people finding out in Europe? 
again, I think it was because, you know, sure, it was in Climbing Magazine, but, um, and it just a little postage. But I think, again, it's because if Everest is ascended, it's, it's the most famous mountain in the world for mountaineering. The nose is the most famous big wall route for big wall climbing in the world. And if something happens on it, word's going to spread. That's how I I looked at it anyway. And it seemed to play out that way. So the news just got around. We didn't, I mean, we just started having email, but you know, it was the culture people talked about it because it's important route. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, from your first ascent in two and a half days to then eight hours with Steve Schneider. And then ultimately your best time was with Alex Honnold, 2012 of two hours and 23 minutes. I'd love yeah. to, I'd love to hear like, what were some of the biggest chapters as far as logistical improvements, tactical improvements, things like that, that led to those kind of quantum leaps in efficiency and, and time savings and things like what were, what style were you guys doing you and Steve, you know, in, in uh, 1990, that eight hour time, like what kind of style were you guys doing and then how have things evolved and what were some of the biggest milestones or chapters there? Well, certainly, um, the first time I climbed with Peter vividly, I was stopped that there's a bolted anchor at the base of the stove legs. And I was at that and he was leading, I don't know, 60, 70 feet above me. And I'm looking at him he's like you should start simul climbing with me or something like that if you feel comfortable and i'm like uh i don't think so not on this section it was kind of hard right off the subject but i also like hey peter like you don't have any gear in you know and he's like 70 feet up <laughs> like so it doesn't seem like this is a time for me to start simul climbing with no gear between us and i'd never simul climbed before pretty much you know other than maybe being roped together on a mountaineering ridge or something so I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I had a gree And so I, actually, I think I jugged that first pitch because I, it was too hard for me at that time. When, I think it's only five, nine or something, but I didn't want to simul climb on some. I even had the remotest thought that I might fall on. So I think I jugged that first pitch and then he did the next one. And I said, well, if you want me to simul climb, you, you got to put in more gear, man. You know, he'd get to the end of the pitch and like, he'd still have a rack full of gear. <laughs> like, Dude, put some gear in. Um, I wouldn't say it like to that to him because I was just like very respectful. Um, but uh, that was a leap is this two people moving at once. And it's important to make this point to people because folks go like, oh, you went faster from 1990 to 2010 because you're taking more risk and being less safe. And it just isn't really so much true. Um, Even that first time I signed my climb with Peter, like there was always, you know, always at least 100, 150 feet of rope between us. And that in that span, there must've been at least four or five pieces of gear. So there's no way either one of us would have decked. And if he had fallen on lead, um, you know, he would have only fallen the normal lead fall that there would be because I have the rope through a gree So the rope's infinitely changing distance. So it's exactly, you know, with distance between us. And, you know, interestingly enough, I would ask Dean Potter and Timmy O'Neill after they got the record, I'd go and chat with them, 
say, hey, that's so good job. I bought him drinks, you know, pat him on the back. Congratulations. What did you guys do here, there? And they realized like I was asking them what their, you know, their strategy was through a pendulum or stuff because I was trying to learn should the second person go to the top of the pendulum and then swing over or should they swing when they're at the pendulum point? What should they do? These sort of things we worked out. And some of it was six and a half dozen. I mean, it didn't matter which way you did, but other times we realized, oh, there's no point in having both climbers climb to the top of the boot flake and then lower back off and then climb over next to it. Mm. When you could just have somebody swing at the base of the boot flake over or both swing from the top of it. So no one has to climb to, you know, one section of rock twice, right. Or both climbers climbing it. Mm -hmm. So with things like that, you just, you think out and you learn from other people like, Oh yeah. And when the leader lowers off the boot flake, they clean all the gear. So the second doesn't have to clean it right before they pendulum over and they just take the gear with them. So there was all these logistical things like that, that we just had thought through when me and Steve did it in 1990. And those, those things might save five minutes here, 10 minutes there. And all of a sudden when the record's now under seven hours, under six hours, those add up, right? Because the route's 32 pitches long. So gosh, just even the, the fact that instead of handing one or two pieces of gear off at a time at the anchor, you've clipped all the gear onto a rack and you just hand the person the, the new sling of gear like you just eliminated, you know, three minutes there. Mm. And three minutes times 32 pitches is, wow, that's, you know, 96 minutes. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot of time, right? Yeah. So it, it wasn't, um, it wasn't physically climbing faster because, you know, I would guess that Steve and I climbed when we were climbing and not fiddling with gear and messing around eating lunch and messing around <laughs> changing gear when we were just climbing between pieces we probably climbed as fast in 1990 as i did in 2002 really yeah yeah fascinating and you know as i climbed with yuji we we would simul climb more and more and more each time we did it i climbed the, the nose route i think 14 times with yuji mm. and the first time we did it, we pitched out every single pitch. We did it in a day and a half with his buddy Kenji. And we're like, hey, let's go up and try to do it in a day and see how it goes. And we pitched it out um, and did it in really fast, um, working on free climbing it and stuff. Um, and you just like, hey, we need to replenish the leader with gear every once in a while. So the first time me and Yuji did it in blocks, we did it in, I don't know, like six blocks or seven. And then we did it in four blocks and then we did it in two blocks, I think. Or wow. four, I think four was the four was the shortest me and Yuji got it too. And then with Alex, we did it in, I did it in, I don't know, 10 blocks the first time, maybe eight blocks that time, then six, then four, then two. Yeah. I don't know what Tommy and Alex did it in. I suspect they did it in two blocks, but I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And there's that there's that film um, featuring their journey towards climbing it under two hours, breaking the two hour mark. Tommy and Alex together, uh, and it covers some of the history, and it covers you and Alex climbing it together. And I love the part where Alex Honnold literally 
learns how to speed climb by reading your book and then goes and climbs the nose with you. It's just amazing. You literally wrote the book on this stuff. And I, I would love to hear how relevant is this stuff in that book for what you guys were ultimately doing? Like, is it, was it that detailed or, or were you doing all these subtle little, you know, slightly more risky or just more specific uh, logistical you know, time-saving things that are relevant to the to the nose only. So I, I want to ask you that, and then I think it'd be good to cover just some of the general stuff in the book that, you know, is relevant for someone that wants to do NIAD for the first time or things like that. But let's start with, yeah, how relevant is the stuff in the book towards what you actually ultimately did with Alex climbing it in two and a half hours or two hours and 23 minutes? Well, to be clear to the listeners, I'm not trying to sell any books because the book's been out of print for like 10 years. Oh, okay. And I just pulled I just pulled up on Amazon. It's $52. If you get a used one, it's $47. Right? And guess what? I don't see any of that money. <laughs> it's just either used, right? And it's so crazy. Um, I, I want to give a tip even to people that I won't make money on either is that uh, the first edition called Climb On is you know, it's 95% the same uh, info. There's just a couple of stories in, that are changed in it. And that book, sometimes you can find, let's see, it. what's the cheapest one I can find right now on Amazon? Oh, $16. Oh, there you um, go. That's up. It used to be down with below 10 sometimes. But yeah, so <laughs> Inflation. get climb on. Skills for more efficient climbing. Uh, you know, in there's a... To answer your question, absolutely. There's tons of stuff in there that Bill Wright and I um, learned from each other, climbing multi-pitch 510s and climbing around Eldo and climbing in, in Yosemite. Um, you guys co-authored that book? Right. Bill Wright, basically, he, he calls himself the king of 510s or the forever 510 climber. Um, but he runs all sorts of cool stuff. He lives in Superior and uh, thankfully his house didn't get burned in his last fire that went through there but he has these folks called the uh the flat irons uh satan's minions they meet every once in a while and they run up the first and second third flat iron and back down to the parking lot and um mostly soloing it um and he's just a total uh unsatiable climber for you know he says five ten level but whatever he's he's great at everything he's climbed the nose in the day other people and myself and he's very gifted climber and athlete overall and he just loves delving into sharing how you get this stuff done you know he's raced up the naked edge in i think i don't know a couple hours or something now the record's down to something ridiculous by like 30 minutes or something but there's tips in there just like how to arrange your gear do you put the gate in do you put the gate out do you clip if you have three number one camelots or friends or whatever your brand is do you clip them together or do you clip them in a row on your rack and why you might do that or why should you put them on your harness versus your rack and there's just you know this is this is kind of again i'm not trying to sell the book because i don't make any money from it, but I actually wrote the book with Bill after only kind of skimming Royal Robbins Rock Craft and some maybe AMGA guides. And almost everything in our book, you could probably find in an AMGA guide or Rock Climbing 101 book. It's just that we 
talk about it, how it saves you time. Mm. We're doing it as a quote unquote, the same safe way that you would have it described in, you know, rock craft, something, something, something. But I've seen these books, you know, the spirit of mountaineering, like an encyclopedia, super thick. And even the how to rock climb by John Long that sold so many copies. It's a long book. And to get to where, like, how do I, how do I arrive at the multi-picture anchor and then leave that multi-pitch anchor efficiently and effectively isn't, it's not really addressed that way. It's just said, here's how you build an anchor somewhere. Mm. And then um, I do teach a lot of clinics and I, I go through with people and show them and have them go through arriving in a multi-pitch anchor and then leaving it. And the logistics of how you could clip on top of somebody and get locked in or clip underneath the hall bag and get locked in and not be able to get out of there easily um, is stuff that really kind of got to experience sometimes. But we tried our best in diagrams and illustrations in the book to show how to avoid those things. And, you know, Alex, of course, was clumsy as all heck and almost, you know, dropped me off the route the first time. But <laughs> otherwise, we did fine. <laughs> no, he... Um, he it's very on. It's a nice honor that he says he learned stuff from the book and read it stuff. That's super cool. Um, but you know, part of it is the struggle, and this is spelled out in the book. Do you bring lots of gear so that you can link two pitches together, right? Mm. Or do you bring a light amount of gear so you can go faster and just do each pitch singly? Well, Alex just says, oh, well, let's just bring a light amount of gear and link them together. <laughs> right. Like, Wait a minute, Alex. <laughs> Not everybody can climb 512. So like that doesn't work, you know? <laughs> and, you know, if people have heard the story, like he refused basically to let me carry a number four or number three Camelot it up the route. He's like, we don't need those because my, you know, my fist is the same size as those. So why would you bring that? <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, it's hard. People don't want to bag on Alex. It's like, he's the king and stuff. But like, yeah, I, I just let people know I had to carry the number three Camelot the whole way. Cause he didn't want to carry it. <laughs> and I used it too. Right. Not. Yeah. Right. He wouldn't have. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. This is a question from Christoph. It's a perfect question um, to get some of these tangible insights that you have a lifetime of experience with. Christoph writes, as someone who has tried to climb the nose and had to bail, I found that success, or in my case, failure, comes down to finding efficiencies and knowing a few sneaky tricks to avoid wasting time and effort. Could you share your top three make or break tricks for being hyper-efficient on a big route? Wow. Uh, Number one is never be shy to communicate super clearly with your partner on everything. Like a classic is you arrive at the top anchor after been leading for, you know, an hour, hour and a half, whatever. And you say off belay and you get busy, you know, clipping yourself in and building the anchor and getting ready for the haul bag to come up. And you're like, okay, ready to haul the bag. And the guys, your partner, whoever he or she is like, well, I didn't know you were off and they've just been sitting down there, mm. you know, thinking you're stopped at a hard part. And so they have gotten to do nothing while you were up there off the lay and doing your business, right? That's the number one suggestion is be super clear on communication. So when I say off belay at the when I finish a pitch, 
I know and expect and agree with my partner that they're going to say, okay, you're off belay when they, mm. once they take me out of the creepy or whatever device they're blaming me with, so that I know they heard me. Right. And I even go one step further and I say, thank you. When I hear them say that, so they know <laughs> I heard them so I can get busy doing my thing and then get busy doing their thing. And you know, the, the other little added detail, which is important is you should always follow commands with someone's name because mm. of the busy. And I tell this story to make it clear you're at, you know, shelf road or a busy crag and someone at the top of the route says off belay. Holy fuck. Did eight people just take their climber off belay that are along this cliff band yeah. that are all five feet apart? Like, please say off belay Susie or least bet or whatever, so, you know, say people's names after a command. And I, you should do that. If you're in Patagonia and there, there's no one around, you should do it on El Cap because that tends to be as busy as a sport clag sometimes. Mm. If you're in the gym, you should follow commands with names. So there's my number one thing is communicate clearly, whether it's walkie talkies or pull rope signals or whatever it is, it's windy. That'll save you a ton of time. People not doing stuff is, or doing the wrong thing is even worse, right? And then the second is, uh, I guess, thinking about how you keep both people working to move upward. And the communication helps with that, right? Like once that bottom person knows they don't have to belay you anymore, they can be either putting on their climbing shoes or arranging ropes and getting the hall bag to get out or whatever. But think about ways to keep both people doing stuff. Um, it's hard to figure out like, oh, you're on an hour lead and you're just belaying. There's not much for the belayer to do, but you know, you could be drinking water you could be organizing the rope so it feeds out well all these things they sound a little bit maybe hurried or rushed but i just think of it as you want to have a sense of urgency like i want to see what is it that i could be doing to help progress things up i mean like if i'm the leader and i'm there and i've hauled the bag up and now i'm just waiting for the follower to come up i would be like are the ropes just piled or are they neatly, you know, flaked so that they can feed on the next thing? I'm not going to just sit here and, you know, fold my arms and, you know, actually there's great reception on El Cap. So you could do some social media, I suppose, by the person who you're waiting for the person to jug the last pitch, but, um, buying that find stuff to do. Right. Uh, uh, what would be something past that? Cause those are, those two are so huge that I think, things past that are as far as efficiency i would rather fail on el cap because i had too little water or too little food than fail because my haul bag was too heavy mm. and i can't get the stuff up i see a um a lot of people struggling and the hauling is way harder than the climbing because they've put you know a hundred or more pounds in a single bag or a train of bags and the person trying to haul is just killing themselves so many small steps is always easier than one big step so if you have to haul two bags rather than one big one do that because um, you'll probably not kill yourself hauling two bags but trying to haul one big bag is bad mm. uh, and I'm not as a do as I 
say, do as I did person on that. I try to keep to one hall back, but and one hall, but um, I've seen people bail because they just haul back is too immense. Do you have a, a limit for yourself? Like what is the most weight? What What's the maximum that you would go for a haul bag up going up the nose? I mean, there's no way in heck I would ever haul a train of bags that weigh more than me. Mm. I'm pretty light. I only weigh 158 pounds, um, but I would never haul a group of bags that weigh more than me. And I think in the, and I've bivvied on El Cap a lot of times. I've probably bivvied, I don't know, 50 nights, which means I've hauled a lot of routes, right? Um, I think one out of the 50, 60 days I've, I've hauled bags, I've done a two to one or, or more than just the over the pulley haul. Oh. Like putting that extra ratchet down and doing a two to one or a three to one back and forth thing. Yeah, I just, there's something wrong if, if you've got to make the bag that heavy. And I've done it with a group of five people, right? And with a group of five people, what you do is you make the followers work, which means they wear backpacks, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, a, a common thing is that the nose, how it hurts people is the first half of the nose is low angle. I'm putting my hand here. Zoom. <laughs> it's really low angle. And that's when your bag is weighs the most. So it's, it's the worst. And that's people will bail after the first third because they've got this gigantic bag and they just can't fathom how they're going to finish. Right. But what you don't realize is the second half of the nose is vertical. If even gently overhanging and the bag doesn't drag against any rock and it weighs less because you drunk a lot of water. So the hauling just gets easier and easier by exponential amount because it's not dragging and it weighs less. Mm. Um, so what I will coach people to do that are trying to do a big wall style is have your followers wear that heavy weight, one or two gallons of water on their back. Because when you jug on low angle, it's easy to jug on low angle weight on you. It's hard to jug on the steep up higher. So your people following take the water out of the haul bag, not all of it, of course, but a gallon or two per person and have them jug it on their back. And then once you get to the steep part, they don't have to put weight in their pack because one, you've drunk it all and two, you can put it in the hog bag because it's not dragging it anymore. So mm. it's a nice little strategy for the nose, certainly, or any big wall that's got slabs. You got to drag heavy stuff off the beginning. Yeah, that's super helpful. That's really helpful. Yeah. I, I want to ask you this. For someone who is a very experienced climber who has a, a reasonable shot at doing the nose in a day, but they've never climbed, they've never tried before, um, how much water do you think you should bring per person for something like that? Well, there's doing it in a day in 20 hours and there's doing it in a day <laughs> in six hours, right? Right. Um, so a great fun story of the lore of Yosemite is that when I talked to Tom Frost and those guys, they would do a quart of, of water per person per day. Ooh. And, and they at times would believe that like, they wouldn't allow themselves sips of water during the day because they thought they'd be afraid they'd drink all. So they'd wait until the end of the day to drink their court. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, geez, um, not always, but mostly. Right. And when I'm comfortably going with somebody that I'm like, I guided the route for the net access fund a number of times with Steve, we would kind of start with one gallon of water per person per day. So three people, three days, that'd be, nine gallons, right? 
and you times that by eight pounds per gallon, it's pretty heavy. But on a speed ascent, you're going to start with fully hydrated. Your body is carrying water and you should, you know, I'd say a 15 hour ascent, 70 degree temps, two and a half liters. Now I'm switching to metric, but you know, two quarts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If it's hotter, more, if it's less hot, less. So I'm going to reach a lot of people on your podcast. If you stash something on the, the route, it's a, it's all right. But like, it's not really doing it a day. You went the day before and <laughs> fixed pins on it or friends, mm. or if you stashed water, um, then you did something a different day. Yeah. Uh, interesting. And so that people know this, um, there is often water on the route. And when I did the speed records, I never took water from stashes mm. on the route. Um, even many times I've done the route and knew there was water up there. And if I'm ever going for this record, I, I would not allow myself to take things from the route. Cause that's just, it's just a different style, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's wrong. It's just to compare yourself to other people that didn't do that. Then you're not doing the same speed record. It'd be like going up and, tying lower off ropes on every single pendulum so you could do them faster right the day before that i would that would void your comparing your record to the way you know alex and tommy did it or me and yuji yeah yeah that makes sense cool speaking of alex and tommy what was it like watching them and and i maybe brad and jim before that but these guys that took you know the record from uh, from you and Alex, 2012, you did it in two two hours and 23 minutes. And then these guys have whittled it down and Tommy and Alex took it below two hours. Um, I know you were very invested in that story and you were, you know, watching from the meadow and stuff. What was it like to to watch that happen? Is that something you assumed was inevitable, like breaking the two hour barrier? Did you think it could be done? Do you think it can be bested? What's your perspective on it as an observer at this point? I kind of always knew that the record will get broken. Um, and I was honored, I guess, that Alex called me and let me know when they were going to give it their go to break the record. So I got some friends to put, I had casts on both my feet because I was prepping for surgery because I broke my legs the <laughs> week before. Uh, the and, week before. Oh, man. <laughs> So I, yeah, I think I actually had to wait like 10 days after breaking to get the surgery. And then that's right. So might have been 10 days, whatever. Um, yeah, Alex was kind enough or whatever, inclusive enough to tell me they were going for it. So we drove from the, from the Bay Area at 3 a.m. in the morning and got there. And yeah, I sat in my wheelchair and watched them get the record. At that time, it was 2.09, I think they were breaking the 219 record that was set by the other cats. Um, Brad and Jim. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Brad and Jim. I'm so sorry. Brad and Jim. I'm space none. Um, I would love to climb with Jim sometime. seems like a real character. Um, but it was just a total joy to see them, you know, at dawn, walk by the car, give me whatever. Hey, how's it going? I'm like, good luck. You guys go fast, take chances, whatever. <laughs> um, it was just totally, 
cool to be part of the the scene and be on in the know that they were going for it, getting to watch them go for it. So super cool to just sit there and go, wow, oh yeah, 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 you know, looking at your watch, going, yeah, they got they're doing well, they're doing good. And um that's super cool. I mean, I don't know what to say. Mm. I, you know, have my thoughts like, oh, if I had broken my legs, would I be going, you know, trying it? You know, I don't know. Actually prior to my legs being broken, Alex called so it would be okay if I went and did the speed record with Tommy. I'm like, sure. Yeah, go for it. Oh, cool. How long do you think that one is going to stand? The current record at one hour, 58 minutes and whatever is seven seconds. I guess it kind of depends on how quickly my legs heal. (laughs) Such a perfect answer. I love it. Maybe, maybe never. Yeah. But this is the interesting thing about getting the record on the nose is that unlike, uh, who's going to be the first person to do V, I don't know, 17 or 18, whatever the latest bouldering problems or the late or 515D, climbing the nose record fast. We know from gymnastics that, you know, the, the best World Cup climbers are going to be probably 18 to 21 years old, right? Because they don't allow you to do World Cups. I don't think it's like 16. I don't know if the Olympics is going to have a limit, but it's going to be those late teenagers because they're light, wiry, and super strong and they've been climbing since they were four years old, right? Just like gymnastics, because that's what climbing is, is applied gymnastics. Mm. But the nose route, you can't go to Yosemite unless you have parents that are whacked and climbers and take you there, or you have a driver's license. Mm. And the number of years of, you know, many days of climbing you have to put on Yosemite granite to get skilled enough to do that is going to take place for most people after they have a driver's license. So what I'm getting to here is that the people who get the record on the nose are going to be not a 16 or 17 year old, you know, child prodigy. They're going to be somebody who's been out on granite many seasons. And um, there's going to be some sort of interest or need from the culture to see that happen. And why I say this is that here you have Tommy and Alex dedicated I think they did it 10 or 12 times together and they, they spread it out over a month and a half. And there had to be, you know, they, they probably don't exactly think about like, what am I going to do? What climbing thing am I going to do so that my sponsors are happy so that I get sponsored again? You don't think of it that cleanly in that black and white, but in 1991, nobody gave a fuck. And, you know, I didn't make any money from climbing the record of the nose fast and there was nobody filming it. In fact, nobody even bothered to film me and Alex doing it because we just kind of did it a couple times and then ran up and got the record, right? So maybe they just weren't interested or whatever. But when Tommy and Alex did it, they have enough of a following and there's enough news about the nose speed record that they it's worth their time to invest in it, right? And so when there's that sort of combination of people skilled enough to climb the nose have the ability to do it and they feel it'll they can invest that time to do it It, it'll happen just when that synergy of all those things coming together happens you know will it be this season or will it be five years from now i don't know Mm. but you know 
there's been all these things like Emmy, Emily Harrington and um, uh, Jordan Cannon, you know, climbing these big, long free routes in a day. And they certainly have the skills and the gifts to run up the nose in a day, if not, you know, four or five hours. And it might intrigue them to see that they can do it. Mm. Uh, I will say that, you know, doing it with Alex, there was never a time that there wasn't, you know, two really good pieces or three great pieces between us. So I never felt unsafe with him. Same with Yuji. We would always have three or four pieces of gear between us. And, you know, we, we I like numbers and math. And I think I had an average of something like 31 feet of between pieces of gear when I led the first half with Alex. Wow. And that sounds like a, a long run out. But when you think that lots of that terrain is a fourth class ledge, the like sickle edge, and you go across in five, seven, and five, six train, and parts of El Cap Tower are five, five, and five, four. Like even a five, eight climber wouldn't think even two seconds about running it out 60 feet on a fourth class ledge that you're just walking across. So that means, like, you know, where it's hard, it's well closer than 31 feet average. And, you know, just trying to give people a perspective that it's, it's not as dangerous as people think. Like, it, it bothered me when they show the, you know, the Thomas and Alexander Uber, like taking these big whips and, and Dean Potter saying you could die up there. And then of course, Tommy went and did a hundred foot fall. It's like, ah, I, I never took a, a fall ever, ever since 1990 with Steve Schneider. I never took a big fall with, um, Yuji hmm. going for the speed record. Um, nor with Jim Herson, nor with Peter Croft or whatever. We just, I think it's possible to get the record and not be unsafe. Got it. You think even now with the record sitting below two hours? Yeah. And I know Tommy well enough. He probably had to convince his wife that it was safe mm -hmm. um, and, and himself. I mean, he's, he doesn't want to get hurt. Um, and, and Alex too. I think people think Alex is aloof to what safety is, but the guy's solid, you know, he, he doesn't need a number three Camelot. I do. So I brought one. You know? <laughs> yeah. At what point do you think it might become just a purely physical limitation? I mean, like you can only climb 3000 feet of rock so fast, you know, you, I, I don't know if it can go in one hour or so, certainly not half an hour. So yeah. At what point do you think it'll become a physical limitation? So the Spelunkers have jugged that distance in 48 minutes. Oh, okay. The cavers, the people who repellers, they'll come one or two times a season and repel off El Cap. Um, they can actually repel the whole distance. The record's something like seven minutes. It's crazy. Oh my God. They're like pouring water on their device. But they have ascended in 48 minutes. And when you think about the motion of climbing, it's repetitive when you're using those rope ascenders with your feet and your chest harness and stuff, ascending a single rope, but the motion is similar. So when you think the record's an hour and 58 minutes up the nose and the record of jugging's 48, somewhere in between there is what it would take to climb it the fastest. And mm. you could string a rope, fix it the whole route on the nose and put a, uh, whatever, a pencil traction or some, a rope men or some sort of, you know, ascender device and slide it up as you climb and there's no doubt you could climb it faster than 158 mm. probably even you could 
um, <laughs> not knowing what your skills are. I mean, after some practice, you certainly could because you're yeah. not dealing with placing gear, taking gear out. All you're doing is clipping and unclipping your, you know, your whatever device you're using to hold you to the rope, pencil mini traction or whatever. And without any fear of falling, you're just racing up. So I think athletically, given that a spelunker's done it in 48 minutes, probably could be done just if you had, you know, Star Trek gravitation boots so that you fall and you just resolo the thing with gear. Certainly you could go faster than an hour and 58 minutes. Now you just got to tie in the skills of, you know, having rope between two people. Mm. How serious are you when you say, you know, however long it takes for your legs to heal? You think you'll go for it again? He's just smiling at me. Is there there something wrong with his audio? Um, I don't know. All right. Yeah. All right. If my if my feet did never have pain, I would be climbing a lot more than I am now, and that's mm. one of my favorite places to climb. So I would dabble with seeing how it goes. A lot of ifs. Okay, fair enough. I wanted to ask this question from Henry, and it's, you kind of just answered it because I think I think people that don't know just assume that you got hurt speed climbing the nose, um, but you didn't. I think you were on like a multi day ascent, if I remember correctly when you took that fall. Is that, is that right? I was on a one day ascent. One day ascent. Okay. And we were on like hour 12, I think, or 11. Yeah. So it would have been worked out to been like a 16 hour ascent or something like that. Yeah. Just a leisurely, you know, (laughs) leisurely romp. Well, I'll ask this question. It might not be relevant, but, um, I think it'll still provoke some of your thoughts. This is from Henry. Henry wrote, Bill Wright and Hans Florin wrote an excellent book on speed climbing. Bill Wright and Hans both recently had accidents while engaged in speed, or at least somewhat fast climbing. Has Hans' attitude towards speed climbing tactics changed as a result? Are these worth it, or is it better to go slow, place more gear, and pitch things out more rather than simul-climb? Does speed climbing become less sensible as you get older, either because one has more responsibility, kids, things like that, or because reflexes are not as good as we age and speed becomes more dangerous? It's a lot to throw at you. Yeah, those are a lot of questions. First, uh, there's one that jumped out as me. It's essential that you speed climb as you become older because the kids and, and the job and all the other things, you only have a limited time to climb. So <laughs> you need to get lots in on the weekend or in the evening after work or whatever your lunch hour. So it's essential that you go faster as you get older. Um, that's easy to answer that. Um, I'm unaware of Bill Wright having an accident due to speed climb. Hmm. So I can't talk to that. I know that he's fallen before and broke his back, but I, I didn't, don't think that had to do with speed climb, but uh, I'm just going to not address it because I don't know what his particular thing was. But I, I've talked to uh, people. Um, uh, the AAC has a podcast about um, accidents, and they they interviewed me about my accident, and and I I tried to stress in it, but it's still they in the book accidents in North America they go due to speed climbing, and that's frustrating to me because really a 16 hour ascent of the nose is a leisurely ascent to me. 
Right. My partner, Abe Shreve, had climbed the nose in a day with, and with other people, he'd climbed the nose. He's very competent. We were just strolling along. And while, again, trying to be efficient, while he was cleaning the great roof, I just went on self-play and started leaving a pancake flake. I wasn't running up it or whatever. I had a grigri on and I had just unclipped the grigri and I had 15, whatever, 18 feet of slack out. And unfortunately, the ledge was 15 feet below me. So I hit mm. the ledge and it fell three feet off it. So self-belaying is a technique that you can use speed climbing, but it's also a very common technique you use just climbing the route, right? So as far as the technique I'm using, Royal Robbins used it when he first soloed the nose, right? Or soloed El Cap many times. Is it a speed technique? It's just a solo technique. Um, we were short fixing. Yeah, I fixed the rope for my partner. So you could say that's a speed climbing technique, but it wasn't be that I was speed climbing that caused me to get injured. It was that I placed the nut. I didn't place it well. And I had a little bit too much slack out on my self belay lead line. And I, Hit a ledge. I've climbed past that section there a hundred and nine times prior to that, right? And it's kind of like a truck driver, right? That drives a million miles in five years. They're out there on the road driving a million miles safe. And then when they get in an accident, are they doing something dangerous? Well, they're way more safe than you. <laughs> They did a million miles without an accident. I mean, I've been climbing 38 years and I've never been rescued. Kind of crazy. Um, yeah, I've helped with some rescues and I've been injured bad enough that, you know, it wasn't a good thing. I broke my thumb. I fell 35 feet. Again, that wasn't speed climbing. It was in Patagonia. I tumbled down something and broke a thumb out of a, which I probably should have broken my back, but did. Um, so, I think speed climbing draws your focus and you're often safer because you're moving with urgency and with focus. Um, I point out a normal ascent of the nose where you're belaying somebody for an hour and a half on a pitch. You have time to look around at the clouds behind you to think about bills that are due the next week. You have time to take your focus off task at hand. Mm. When I'm belaying Yuji and he takes five minutes to climb a hundred feet, like I am focused on belaying that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crazed about taking care of him. Mm. And my focus is not off anything but climbing for that two hours and 37 minutes that I'm on the route with Yuji. Nothing else enters my mind other than how can I belay him safely, climb safely, take gear, gear, nothing else. But when you're on a route for three days, your mind's not going to be focused every minute at climbing. You're going to think about other stuff. And I'm not going to say it's crazy dangerous. It's just to equate going fast with danger. It's not, it's not a forgiving conclusion, foregone conclusion at all. So to, uh, what was the guy's name that asked that? Henry. <laughs> Henry. Yeah. Henry. Um, you know, moving urgently, quickly, getting lots of climbing in is heck of fun. And it <laughs> often draws your focus so that you're not thinking about the bills. It's the reason a lot of us climb is because you're not thinking about the bills that are due the next day when you're trying to pull that, you know, draw off your thing and reach up and you're 
form's about to go and you make the clip and you clip in like, wow, you're, you know, 100% of your focus was on getting to the top of that 511B project that you're doing or 513 or whatever it is. Or for that matter, you know, going up a trad route at the cook cliff, right? Mm. So, yeah, I don't equate or make it a foregone conclusion that going faster is less safe at all. I just put tons of mileage in. So I don't want to say it was bound to happen, but um, there's lots of alpinists that it's a lot more dangerous to be an alpinist, I think, than a rock climber. And mm. Lots of them that have not lasted 10 years, let alone 35, 38 years. So it's choosing, you know, choosing where you want to go, I guess. I, I don't want to go climbing. I want to go at all. I, I like all the stuff I'm doing. So. <laughs> well, awesome. I think that was, yeah, that was a really good answer. Thank you for that. I think you make a compelling argument <laughs> for sure. A good spokesperson for speed climbing. <laughs> uh, let me ask this question from Hazel Finley. This cracked me up. Uh, was climbing the nose with Hazel your slowest time? Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. All right. Nice, Hazel. I kind of figured. Yeah, she definitely was one of the notable things. I mean, she's incredible, right? She's super incredible. Had a father that taught her climbing when she was teeny tiny, young. And I'd say the if I could award her something of all the people I've got to climb with, she's by far and away the most competent at handling ropes and dealing with gear of any person I've ever climbed with at her age. Wow. Yeah. I don't want to say woman or man because it's, it's true of any person as young as she was. So she's been climbing for a long time and doing trad climbing for so long. It's just such a pleasure to arrive at an anchor and she's just got shit together. You know? <laughs> it's awesome. Nice. That's cool to hear. And didn't, didn't she insist on climbing the whole thing instead of jugging all the follow pitches? Yeah. I mean, she insisted we didn't bring jugs. So yeah. <laughs> um, That's awesome. And after having done the route, you know, that many times, um, it was, it was a, interesting that I just thought like, wow, I have actually never climbed without jugs. So yeah, let's do this. Nice. Took an outside person to get me to try something new. It's fun. <laughs> have you ever free climbed El Cap? Well, with Yuji, um, after we did it in a day and a half with his friend Kenji, we went up in a day and we free climbed everything on it except the great roof and changing corners. And, you know, Yuji in his mild sort of funny way. So it's like, yeah, we could free it, but it would just take a lot of work. Mm. And we just did it in one go, the whole thing. And uh, I think we, we didn't red point the 12 C down low from sickle to adult, but we free climbed every move and did it to like one hang. And then the great roof, he probably did every move on the great roof, but one or, you know, whatever a meter of distance. And the same thing with like the changing corners, he free climbed everything on it, but like whatever, just the one transition, like two or three meters. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he's super gifted free climber. And I was really at probably one of my top free climbing 
times in Yosemite climbing at that time when I went with him and I, I got all everything free except for the great roof and the changing corners. Too, yeah. So. I mean, that makes sense. Changing corners, you know, is like 14A, the great roofs, 513, 13B or C. Um, that's, that's a hard route. I mean, but I'm curious, like, have you ever wanted to try to free climb, I don't know, Golden Gate or, or free rider or El Corazon or, or one of these things that's certainly within your free climbing ability level. I mean, you've climbed what, what 13D? Uh, yeah. And I've climbed 14s that get downrated to 13. Okay. <laughs> uh, like the surf yeah. safari used to be 14A and that's 13D. Um, I haven't, and that's probably it, that one. And then I did a, a first ascent in Santa Maria at uh, Mr. Lee's area, which hasn't had a second. And we think it might be 14A, 13D. Yeah. That's when I was kind of climbing at my strongest back then. Um, but we divert from the real subject at hand about uh, it, there's a desire to climb like free rider and golden gate stuff like that. But my last, you know, 20 years I've been raising kids and, and the investment to go and project a single pitch that's 15 pitches off the ground is pretty time consuming. Mm. Um, even if you did it in a day, um, to get there and then worked on it, it's, it's still so time consuming. I, I just didn't have the bandwidth to want, to want it bad enough. Mm. Cause there's certainly other parents that have gone and free climbed golden gate and free rider and South Bay, Jim Hurston being one of them, you know? So I can't play the parent card excuses me from doing those. It's just, I just haven't had the bandwidth with other things I'm doing. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just must not be that interesting to you or else you would have found the bandwidth and done it. I, I have to assume. Well, eh, it's just, there's so many other cool things for me to do. I don't want to poo poo people have done it at all. Cause it's amazing. Right. And I know a couple of people, including my good friend, Lewis, um, Louis Wu, who, by the way, I'm, I'm holding up my Koros watch. I, I love my Koros watch because I'm in the numbers and it, it just records everything. So amazing. He wants to go and do free rider and I'm totally game to go help him because I feel there's less pressure. If like, oh, Louis, could I try top roping this pitch, you know, while you're resting? <laughs> that way there's not pressure on me to do it. But, you know, if things go well, then yeah, I might do it too, you know. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, there's a couple other people that uh, I might support on free rider or golden gate or something else. And I would do it with out pressure on me, probably not that I shy away from pressure, but like, that's just, I have so much fun being out on El Cap that I, it's, it's cool just to climb. And mm. this, I, this is brings up an important point that is uh, revealed in the fact that many people, many, many people could go up the nose and they could free climb 2,850 feet of it, all of it below 12 feet, right? And if the style and ethic was like, wow, I could get to climb that much footage of granite and, but they get, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna say hung up on, oh, I had to aid this pitch or that pitch or this section of that pitch so they don't do it. Like now, I'm, now there might be more people on the notes. I mean, there's, thousands of feet that are below 5.11 on the nose. It's so fun. Mm. I mean, the stove mm. legs is all 5.10 and 5.9. And that's 400 feet of 5.9 to 5.10 crack climbing. That's totally awesome. <laughs> that's super fun. So um, 
what I'm saying is like the free as can be folks, Max Jones and Mark Houdon, like really had something going there. Like there's all this free climbing there, but if people just get hung up on, Oh, I had to aid a single point here or there. Like, and I would be have hella fun going up the South Bay and freeing all but three pitches, you know, um, Tom Frost said something about the early climbs. Like there was this really hard climb on, uh, I think it was a uh, higher cathedral spire and it's such a cool line. They went up and, and climbed it. And when he overheard someone asking me about like, I don't know, some route at the cookie cliff, did you do it first try or did you do it free? He's just like, huh, we would have never thought of that. Like we went and climbed this route, you know, mm. we didn't care about how much time or if we hung on a piton or if we put in a piton or if we hung on a, you know, piece of pro in the crack, like we went and climbed that route. It was about climbing this cool line, you know, not that that's the end all ethic that you should have, but like it, it was really made it like that was a fun line to go climb. Who cared whether you hung on a single piece of gear or three times, you know, um, there's amazing tons of free climbing to do on El Cap and you might have to aid a couple places. So what, you know, mm. you get in more free climbing than you would anywhere else in the world. <laughs> so I may have just made you so many more crowded than it's going to be. Anyway. <laughs> so. uh, awesome. Well, I, I'm wondering if you're getting fidgety. I, I can hear you clicking your pen and I know that you're a guy well, that I, likes I'm to I'm looking at my like list move. of things that I haven't touched a single thing on my list. I mean, oh, I forgot if I asked you, like, what's your experience in Yosemite? None. None at all. Well, that's easy. Shake. You don't need to talk about that anymore. <laughs> now your listeners are going to hopefully write in and say, get there, my friend. I know. I know. I know. It's, uh, yeah, the biggest hole in my climbing resume for sure. But I don't know. It's also, it's just interesting. Like, I something I really appreciate about you listening to your book, it's like, you're so unapologetic. I love this route. I want to keep climbing this route. I've climbed it with, I don't know how many people you've climbed the nose with, but like a hundred different people or something. And you don't apologize. There's so many other things to do in climbing. It's kind of easy to look at something like that and say like, why? Why just keep going back to the same thing instead of, you know, you and I are almost the opposite in a way where I very rarely repeat routes. I mean, I, I will project routes for a very long time. But then I very rarely go back and repeat things. I really want to explore as many new things as I can in climbing, but within like a very different scope. I'm really drawn to movement and I'm really drawn to the complexity and the nuance and the intricacy that comes with hard bouldering and hard sport climbing and things like that. And I don't really feel, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure that if I drove into Yosemite Valley and saw the nose, I would be as awestruck as anybody. But I don't feel a pull towards that type of thing so much. I mean, part of me is like, who am I to even ask Hans Florine questions about this stuff if I've never done it myself? But, <laughs> you know, at the same time, I'm trying to like learn to be a little bit more unapologetic, if that's if that makes sense to say it that way. Like, I think it's kind of awesome to just find what you like and double and triple down on that because there's just too much to do. There's There's so many incredible experiences to have in whatever facet of climbing speaks to you. Yeah. I mean, to that point, like, you know, everybody has their different parts of life and it could sound like, Oh, I'm one trick pony doing the nose, but actually 
in the beginning of my climbing, late 80s and early 90s, I would go around and only do pretty much only do on sightings of on-site climbing at most of the climbing crags that I went to. And I think it was really frustrating when I'd go to, you know, Snowbird or a national comp and all these people that I might've been climbing next to them on the cliff, they were projecting these awesome 13 B's and C's and D's. And I was probably never seen on a 13 to A other than to give it a go. And then I would get it. And then I'd go and on, try to onsite a 12 C or a D and, and I would do as well as them or beat them or whatever, you know, I'd be in the top 10, but it was clear that I wasn't climbing as hard as any of them. But guess what? Comp climbing was about a fun site climbing. So that's what I did. You know, I really liked to go to a crag like rifle and go do, you know, 10 on sites in a day instead of being on one route. So in that way, I'm similar to you about going around and doing variety. Um, and, you know, it's just that type of climbing. I, I love the movement. So I wanted to do as many different moves as possible. I, I'd run around even as a, you know, one of the top 10 comp climbers in the country, I'd go to rifle and I'd go do all the five nines, tens and elevens. Cause I want to do all the different routes, you know? And I think, I think I've only been on like maybe two 13s at rifle. Cause I just spent all my time on all the other things. Um, I haven't been there a lot, but um, I've probably been on whatever dozens and dozens of 12s there. So mm. uh, I'm just using rifle as one example. Uh, I'm trying to think what what led into that. Uh, well, your your list. What else is on your list? I'm I'm curious about this now. I should have <laughs> I should have asked you about this at the start. I I've been a little bit erratic the last year and a half. Um, my son just graduated from high school this last year. And so now uh, my, so, and then I have a daughter who's 21, she's at college. And so I have freedom to, I guess, be somewhere for a bit and kind of focus on something right now. I'm in Kentucky and I think I'm going to stay here for a few months. And I actually went on eight a and U. many of your listeners will know what that is, but eight um, a dot nu it's a website where they rank everybody's stuff and i went in there like oh, i'm gonna fill in all the climbs i can remember i did and see where i rank you know and this is fun like crossfit like you can go into crossfit and you can go into aiden AU and say like which country are you ranking uh, because like i think i'm six thousand and two hundred twenty eight or something ranked in the world of the people on eight anu of the, I don't know, 34, 50,000 people ranked. But then you can say how many in the country. And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm 600 in the country. And then you can say, you know, age group and look. <laughs> so you can whittle down until you finally are first. If you say like <laughs> 55 to 55 and a half years old living in California with blonde hair, I'm first in that category, you know. So to, <laughs> to uh, say what I want to do next is like, I filled all that in. I'm like, oh, I'm going to just set some arbitrary, I'm going to try to move up on the list. 500 or something, you know, or I don't know, a couple hundred or something. Cause I'm here in the red river gorge and there's tons of sport climbs I haven't done here. And so for every, you know, seven, a or 12, a you do, uh, you go up in the ranking a little bit or something. So I think it'd be fun to just go around and get a guidebook and tick it off old school, you know, click off with your little magic marker. I did this route, see if I can fill in the guidebook of different routes I've done here. Mm. Be fun. Awesome. And I plan to go back to Yosemite and do some El Cap roots in the spring. 
So new ones or repeats? Uh, I hope to do some of both. Okay. Really. I'm now remembering what I need to come back, circle back to. Please. Was the the thing you mentioned, and it should be actually emphasized that it's not that I've climbed the nose 110 times so much as that I've gotten to climb it with over a hundred and over a hundred different people. Mm. And most mountaineers will climb Everest once if they climb it at all. And it'll be the most memorable thing in their head in their mountaineering experience. Most rock climbers will climb the nose only once, and that'll be super ingrained in their memory. Those 103 or whatever people that I've climbed the nose with, I'm in their memory. I got to see them at the top of that two, three-day effort of work or one-day effort of work and the look on their face, and I'm in their memory. So in their life, I'm immortal because that is, it's such a incredible, memorable thing in people's lives to do. So that's why I keep going back to it. And to bring it around to like, just, you know, when someone has project to whatever, you know, whatever route they're projecting for days and then they top out and they finish and they're so elated and, and you're there, either you're belaying or you're there, you're part of that memory because mm. it's, you know, they've worked on it so hard, right? Um, the nose delivers that experience to everybody that does it, right? Especially if it's their only first and only time. It may get washed up if it's like their third 513B they've red pointed this month. But it's it's similar, you know, if it's something they've worked on a long time, right? They're gonna remember that day they sent it. Mm. So, oh, that's easy to get easy to get drawn back into that when people keep reminding you how cool it is and how fresh. That is super cool. I really love that. That's yeah, that's a really you being immortalized in their memory is a really cool idea. That makes me want to ask, let's flip it around. I mean, I can imagine that after climbing it with 103 different people, it's a lot of different people. It's a lot of different memories, but you know, this doesn't have to be the nose. Who are the people that are cemented in your mind because they shared a really meaningful experience with you that was, that was meaningful for you, that was, you know, um, a bigger challenge or a bigger achievement or whatever? Well, uh, that's... Yeah, there's part of that question is who's affected me maybe most mm. in climbing. And that would, with no equal, would be Steve Schneider. Uh, Shapoopy. Yeah, Shapoopy, Steve Schneider. Like he's he's so, uh, so competent at climbing and at the same time can be so ridiculous and silly. Um, like those two things... Yuji Hirayama is the same way. He can be super funny dancing and partying with people at a, you know, a discotheque in France and then just dead serious nailing his 513B red point or 514B red point at the crag. Like he can focus like a freaking laser and get to the job at hand and he can be super funny. Um, Steve's the same exact way and he's just taught me way more than any other climber, um, you know, not only how to like put a cam in and take it out and you know that sort of stuff and do aid climbing but how to like be chill and go into like a new cliff you've never been to and meet people and you know be have humility and i don't know 
raise everybody up, I guess. So Steve Schneider's had a huge effect on me. Um, Eric Weinmayer, for those who don't know, he's blind and blind since he was 12. He's done seven summits, the eight summits, Count Karsten's Pyramid. Um, and I've gotten to climb the nose with him. I've climbed at gyms with him. I've gotten to go do some alpine climbing with him and trek through the jungle with him. And uh, him, along with Craig Martino, they just, uh, I've been fortunate to be invited in with people who have what we call, you know, disabilities uh, or handicaps or whatever. And I just cannot, I don't have the capacity to whine or complain about anything. I mean, even breaking my legs, like I can't, I can't complain or whine or be sad about something. I can see, you know, I haven't lost my leg. Um, I haven't lost my hearing. Um, so getting to adventure with those folks has really uh, made a great impact on me. Craig D. Martino, Eric Weinmayer, uh, Patty Haskins, all, all sorts of folks mm. been lucky enough to partner with, for sure. Craig wrote something really nice about you that I'll read. This is part of the message that he sent me this morning, but he wrote that Hans is great and that he taught me that you can go fast and still be safe. I've always appreciated his take on that as well as his openness and just overall stoke about climbing and life. And then he wrote, he was one of the people I credit with me coming back to climbing the way that I did because he never looked at me differently. I was just a climber to him and I really value our friendship. So that's that's pretty cool that you, you know, you guys did lurking fear, you did lurking fear in a day and you never treated him like a disabled climber. You just treated him like a climber and you guys crushed it. It's awesome. I think I made him lead more than half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. He's a, he's a good spirit. And um, I think that's a lot of people who take the time to find out I'm not just, you know, some uh, Hollywood haunts with big flowing blonde hair and cocky and, you know, competitor type realize like I have fun climbing with five, seven climbers or five, 14 climbers or whatever. It's, it's the people that, you know, those 103 people up the nose that keep me going up it, not the rock itself, mm. right? This is another listener question. This is from Craig from Indianapolis. Craig writes, hey, mate, who is your greatest non-climbing influence and why? Probably Jack Lane. Towing 70 people in 70 rowboats when he was 70 years old. Crazy shit like that. Doing out of the box you know, you know that's an overused term but like you know who would make up that and you know, i'm gonna swim i'm gonna handcuff myself and swim in the san francisco bay and pull 70 friends you know and then you know a great influence he was a great influence on my good friend steve edwards who passed away a little while ago but we would I think Jack LaLanne and Steve Edwards both did things that they themselves thought they couldn't do. Mm. Like Steve Edwards would take on challenges like for my 40th birthday, I'm going to do 400 different boulder problems. And you're like, there's no fucking way you can do that. Oh, well, I'm going to start. I'm going to try. Okay. <laughs> there's almost, and there was more pride in making a challenge so hard that you failed at it than making a challenge that you could do. Mm. 
Um, that was a great basis of Steve Edwards and his birthday challenge sort of thing. So I'd say Jack Lane is Jack Lane, who was not a climber. Steve Edwards was, he was everything. He was a golfer. He was a basketball star. He was a baseball guy. He was a climber. But so I should stick with non-climber Jack Lane. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Can we ask who my favorite movie star is right now? <laughs> I think his name's Ryan Richardson. He's the guy who plays Deadpool, dude. Ryan Reynolds. He seems, yeah, he seems super freaking funny and blasphemous and yeah, disrespectful to everything on earth. <laughs> just, yeah. You seem like you uh, you resonate with that very dry sense of humor. Yeah. If Reynolds is listening out there, dude, come, I'll take you up. I'll cap. <laughs> oh my God. That would just make my life. If that, if that actually happened, if Ryan Reynolds listened to this podcast and climbed the nose with Hans Florine. Um, there's so much that you've done in your life aside from, aside from all the things that we've been talking about in this whole conversation. I mean, it's just the number of ways that you've made a living is fascinating to me. The diversity of your experience in the corporate world and business world is, I mean, God, we could have a whole two-hour conversation about those things. But I did write down two questions from our first conversation that I really want to hit on here. And they're parallel questions. But the first one is, what are a few of the skills you've gained through climbing that have helped in other areas of life? Doing hard things, um, you know, pushing through things that, you know, maybe you failed at first, but then you succeed. Um, me and my wife, Lisbeth started this thing called DHT challenge, which is do hard things challenge. But, you know, in climbing you, whether it's a boulder problem in front of you at the gym, you can't do it. You can't do it. You try seven ways. You can't do it. Then somebody comes up and they can't do it either, but they show you a way that maybe you can, then you do it. Like it's, I think being able to do things in life that are hard at first, then they become easy or they become possible. Mm. The impossible becomes possible. And I just, you learn that, you know, every day you go and boulder or sport climb or big wall climb, you learn that you can hit things that are really hard and then get over them, or you can fail at something and then come back and succeed at it. So, you know, I don't know whether you're studying for a real estate license and you fail, you can go back and take it again. Or if you, trying to pass your CPA exam, you can take it again. Yeah. I think that's the biggest thing. I used to be so frightened to fill out a form incorrectly, you know, at the doctor's office or the, or whatever, a paycheck thing, or like you're at your first white collar job after college. And like, you're terrified that you're going to fill out this form wrong and someone's going to get sent the wrong payment. Like, you know what? <laughs> it's not going to end the world. Right. And you're probably not going to get fired as long as you're getting shit done. Mm. Try new things for sure. Do hard things and try new things. That's what I learned from climbing. On the flip side of that, what are a few skills you've gained through other areas of your life that you've been able to apply to climbing? And uh, I just have a one word note here that says manufacturing. And I genuinely don't remember what that means. I wonder if it means anything to you. <laughs> well, I got my degree in economics with a minor in human 
well, production operations management and human resource management. And in production operations management, that's a lot of syllables and a lot of mouthful, but you're trying to find the most efficient way to make the Ford, you know, line, Ford Motor Cars line company go through quickly and have zero defects. You know, you're trying to improve everything, how, how many cars you can get out at the end of your production line at the end of the day or widgets, whatever, and at the least cost and at the highest quality, you know, all these things. They have lots of different terms for it in modern business stuff. You can get certified in Six Sigma. And when I was doing it was APIX, American Production Inventory Control Society. You got certified kind of like a CPA for accounting. You got certified in that. And it's a weird flip-flop is that a lot of mountaineers will come and talk to business people about lessons they learned on the mountain. Well, I learned things in manufacturing that I took to getting the speed record on the nodes, you know, just handoff of gear and communication and, uh, you know, order of operations, doing a pendulum and different things like that. So, yeah, I think I, I probably brought a lot to, from business to climbing, uh, which is really odd because a lot of people will bring things from the outdoors to business, right? Mm-hmm. Which I've done as well, but. And how are you making a living at this point in your life? <laughs> uh, I'm burning down my wealth right now. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of—it's not joking, but I, I, I did retire. Uh, retire. I did, I don't really call it. Stopped working at least three or four or five times in my life. Like, I went and got a yuppie job right out of university, and I worked for a couple of years, and then I became a full-time climber. I did not become a professional climber. I became a full-time climber for nine, 10 years. And then I worked again, touchstone climbing, doing some marketing. And then I, so, uh, I mean, you asked what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm in Kentucky. I'm helping some guy organize, build some homes here around Red River Gorge. So what does that mean? It means I'll probably be driving some nails, digging some ditches and Maybe negotiating some things, deeds with the land, of the county, everything and everything, you know, and and stuff in between that too. Okay. Do you enjoy that? Yeah, I moved up uh, almost yeah two years ago to Tahoe, and started finding that like there's a, a huge need for construction laborers or people that knew the first thing how to use a tape measure and a and they were paying a lot to have stuff done. So I jumped on that and uh, yeah, I bought a lot of Milwaukee tools um, <laughs> and uh, I have fun creating stuff. I built a couple of bouldering gyms during the pandemic and yeah, if anybody needs a bouldering gym built out there, <laughs> check in with me. Probably I could fit it in somewhere. Um, it's fun to build stuff. That's yeah. awesome. On that note, where can people find you and connect with you? I think I'm most on the net on Instagram. Okay. And it's, you know, Ponce Florine, my account. And do hard thing. DHT Challenge is the Instagram site too for the challenge thing I do. We have, we just launched the 2022 list and we have as many people signed up already as we did it took six months last year to get this many people. We got them in the first few days. So 
Oh, it's awesome. pretty cool. And it's free. It's just this list of challenges to do for the year. Uh, tell me more about that. Can you give me some examples? Like, is this is this daily stuff? Is this just like try to do these handful of things throughout the year? How, how does it work? Well, we provide this list of a hundred, I say we, the whole community, right? I get suggestions from everybody. What should be on the challenge list next year? It changes each year. And there is do five push-ups from your knees. Oh, wow. Really? Okay, done. But there is things like run a marathon. There's mm. write a handwritten note to somebody and mail it to them. Mm. There's wave and smile to somebody you don't know at the supermarket. So there's social challenges. There's physical challenges. There's mental challenges. You know, memorize 200 words from literature and recite it to somebody. Learn a new instrument, whatever. Uh, I, I'm saying in a tone of belittlement, but I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> we encourage, we encourage people challenge themselves in totally odd ways and they want we want them to send me and Lisbeth challenges we haven't thought of you know Lisbeth is the worst for me she does things that are really she goes well talk to somebody about something that's been difficult in their life and I'm just like oh my god I don't want to talk to people about their mom dying or she's like well that's how you get to learn to know people and I'm like oh all right that is hard for me because I want to talk about fun stuff you know Mm. (laughs) so that's the challenge list is it'll surprise you what oddly different things are on there mm. um and we have a whole community of people that share what challenges you did and you make up some of your own so we can learn from each other new challenges to do super fun highly recommended that's awesome and it's free to, yeah. to join the list and get the list or join the yeah you know, the group and get yeah. the list there's no catch give us your credit card or anything like that <laughs> it's just it's just goofy me and lisa trying to encourage people to do crazy stuff pre-pandemic we were going around and doing challenges with people at gyms and places and we're going to start doing that more as you know hopefully presumably there's less restrictions but yeah how long have you been doing this well i started it in 2011 when i was managing diablo rock gym one of the touchstone climbing gyms and we we did it with a lot of things like at the gym climb three blue routes right you can imagine well you gotta have a climbing gym for that or campus board this that or the other or do the traverse around the main wall or something. So there were things that were specific to the gym, but then I started making every year, like people, well, how about climb a four pitch route, which was outside the gym. People loved it. You know, like, wow, you're encouraging people to go out. I'm like, yeah, of course. Why not? Um, do a hundred mile bike ride or do 60 miles in a day or something on your bike. So there's, you know, go on a body of water in a kayak or a stand up paddle board or a raft, you know, getting people to go do, go ascend a peak that you haven't ascended before more than 10,000 feet or something like that. So yeah, that just brought gain steam every year. We made a t-shirt for people to win and <laughs> um, we had some prizes at the end of the year. It's good fun stuff. So. Are there any challenges that really stand out in your memory? Things that um, you wouldn't have done otherwise that led to a really memorable experience or a formative experience? Oh yeah. I mean, we had uh, do a gross number of roots which is 144 for those don't know it's 12 12s um and i did it at a number of gyms in the bay area touchstone gyms and it was just just exhausting i would never have climbed 144 roots if it wasn't for the (laughs) challenge community following me and a couple other people did it too along with me so i would wouldn't have done that without that challenge yeah we did other fun things like go to 
go to five different gyms in a day and do five routes and five boulder problems at each one. Like mm. just totally re- as climbing is, it's ridiculous, but it's just fun to go around and do that. You know, so amazing. What what is something in your life? This can be climbing related this can be activity related or totally other learning a new skill whatever what is something that you are excited about right now i'm actually really excited about uh building relationships here in kentucky and uh, getting some homes uh built yeah for people but it, it's you know like climbing el cap 110 times it's actually really about the people you meet that got to do it with you this is the same thing I, i'm learning you know they have an accent here in Kentucky that's funny to laugh at if you're from California, but there's just a sweetness to them here that um, it's cool to meet new people. And I have a purpose in meeting them here. You know, it's kind of like going climbing in Europe. You got to Europe because climbing and you're meeting people with a You're there for a purpose beyond just going to the Louvre, maybe. Um, I'm here in Kentucky for this purpose and it's I'm meeting all these people in the industry of building and it's fun. Really looking forward to it. And yeah. finally, what is next for Hans Florine? Oh, I uh, move up in the 8ANU rankings. <laughs> that's a, that's all totally quantitative, competitive thing. I love that yeah. so much. That's. <laughs> Do you have sport climbing projects, or is this just going to be through like harder and harder on sites and and just doing more volume of new you know, routes? I'm pretty ignorant about the routes here in. Uh, Red River Course, but Eric Hurst, who is the most amazing and informed research training guru of all time of climbing, Eric Hurst, he's the same exact age as me. And I've been poking him with elbow, like we got to do a 514 at our age. Yes. So he recommends that we get on Omaha, which apparently is a somewhat friendly, classic, steep, medium-sized holds 514 here in Red River Gorge. So I've never been on it. I don't even know if I've been to the base of it, but yeah, I got to go see what that's all about. (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's amazing. He's going to have you on a training plan for this thing. You're going to have the the schedule down to the minute when you're going to show up at the base of the cliff. Can't wait to hear how it goes. Yeah, that I do like about, he's pretty uh, regimented, so we get along on timing stuff like that for sure well hans this has been so much fun man it's um i really really enjoyed your book that's something i want to point people towards you graciously sent me a copy of your audiobook on the nose and you read it it was really fun to hear you read it and there's um it's it's fun it's like kind of a i i mostly listen to audiobooks that are just just the narrator just the spoken words but there's sound effects in this one there's like the sound of jangling gear and like the wind on the wall and some cool stuff that kind of (laughs) makes you feel a little bit like you're there you know and uh Mm. i enjoyed it i enjoyed it a lot i learned so much about you i learned so much about the history of climbing in yosemite in the nose and this this chunk of rock that's so iconic across the world and yeah if people want to go check that out i believe they can find it on amazon or or on audible is that correct Yeah. yeah Audible and iTunes, yeah, and it's on my site. Um, okay. I was. Do you make more money if people, my site? Yeah. Do you make more money yeah, if I people make, buy it for me? Okay. <laughs> I think it's seventy cents if you buy it at Audible, and I get thirteen or fourteen dollars if you get it from me. Okay, perfect. 
And I have to throw out Peter Darmy, climber from the gunks in New York. He's a Grammy award-winning editor. He's the one who put all the cool sound effects and made me sound good in the book. And of course, Jamie Moy, my co-author, made me sound good. She she used my wardrobe of words in the book. So it's great. Amazing. Well, yeah, really appreciate your time today. It's really fun to get to know you a little bit better. Any final thoughts, anything on your list sitting next to you that, that felt important to share? Yeah, well, after we stop recording, I'll ask you all sorts of stuff about getting you out climbing with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing really. You've covered it all. I've done a great job. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, thanks to everybody who is listening. We will share links to Han's Instagram and to his website so you can go check out his book in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com and we will see you next time. Hello, my friends. Before you go, don't forget to check out Fizzy Vantage. I'm super psyched about this company. I actually use their supercharged collagen every day to support my fingers, and I love it. I'm rocking the peach mango flavor right now. I just throw a scoop in a shaker bottle with about 12 ounces of cold water, shake it up, and have a tasty little tropical shake. I actually drank one just before recording this outro. Uh, to check out the supercharged collagen, along with all of the other outstanding Fizzy Vantage products, head over to fizzyvantage.com and use code NUGGET15. At checkout, you'll save 15% off your next order. And check it out and let me know what you think. Also, be sure to check out Crimped. Head over to crimped.com or find the Crimped app. That's the word crimp with a D in the App Store. It's also available on Android. And try it out for free. The free version gives you access to 75 different workouts created by professional coaches Tom Randall and Ollie Tor of Lattice Training. So they are super legit. The flexibility workout I'm doing right now is called hip and leg flexibility. They make stretching super easy. So go check it out if you hate stretching like I do. And finally, if you loved this episode, you can learn more about Hans, Hollywood Hans, as he's affectionately known in the climbing world. You can learn more about Hans Florine and find his books and the Do Hard Things Challenge and all the things in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. I'll be sharing photos of Hans at The Nugget Climbing on Instagram, so be sure to follow me there. Be sure to share this episode with your friends. Leave a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice if you are loving the podcast. That's a great way to help me out. And that's it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you have an amazing week, and we will see you next time.